He has another book that comes out and it's called The Denial of Death. And it's Mm. all about how we as a society are conditioning ourselves to avoid talking about death, to just pushing it off, to being like, oh, no, 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 no. Let's, let's, let's not talk about that. Let's put on Disney Plus and let's watch this very wholesome movie, movie here. And we don't really understand. I mean, the one thing about life is that we are all going to experience death. Like that is certain, you know, but while we're alive, we're doing everything we can to avoid it, Yeah, you know? And in the end, it's not preparing us to handle that sort of aspect correctly. What's up, guys, and thank you for tuning into this episode of the podcast. Before we start, this is a quick announcement to let you guys know that I'm dropping bonus episodes on Auxoro Premium. For the price of an iced coffee per month, you get two bonus episodes of my show, The Aux, every month that covers exciting, deep, and sometimes twisted topics like MK Ultra, the COVID lab leak hypothesis, Fight Club, dating, the obesity epidemic, ayahuasca, alien encounters, and more for less than five bucks per month. In addition to two bonus episodes per month, you also get exclusive Ask Me Anything episodes, the ability to submit topic suggestions for the Aux and the Auxoro podcast, and access to all archived bonus episodes to binge at your leisure. Right now, there's over 25 hours of archived content and it grows every month. For the best deal in premium podcasting, visit auxoro.supercast.com to sign up today. No topic off limits. That's auxoro, A-U-X-O-R-O dot supercast.com. Thank you for your support. And now on to the episode. We're good to go. Back. We're good to go. Back in the game. I am here with author and now friend. Yes, best friend. Best friend. BFFL. What's the best friend for life or is it best friend forever now? BFFL, best friend for life, I believe. I like that. That's very romantic. It makes me feel warm and fuzzy and so I'm going to go with that. And speaking of romance, Mm -hmm. you you presented me with a gift. I did. Yes. Before this this podcast. That's it. I knew Santa was going to bring it to you, but I figured I I would be the first to bring it to you. Spank the Carp, Mm -hmm. now available in Barnes & Noble. Borders or just Barnes & Noble? Uh, Barnes & Noble. Fuck Borders. Yeah. Fuck them. Fuck them. Most bookstores, but honestly, Jeff Bezos is our daddy and it's much cheaper on Amazon. So 100%. Spank the Carp, fiction and poetry, Mm -hmm. 2020 anthology. That's where you can buy uh, or you can read Finn almost buys a goldfish. Finn almost buys a goldfish, yep. which we talked about last time and for I, people coming back. And this is in print here. And you also get some other stories too by worse authors, but still, I mean, yeah, you can, absolutely. you can suffer through that until you get to Finn yeah. almost buys it's, a goldfish. It's great. Cause you could read these other authors and you'd be like, wow, this sucks. I can be a writer. Yeah. You know? 
it sh- it should be called <laughs> I almost didn't buy this yeah. book because it has other yeah. stories besides Finn almost bought a goldfish. Yeah. Or maybe you could just call it spank me because spank like, me. Yeah, I want to get spanked when you read this. Uh, a BDSM slash Chris Cooper. There's a niche for that. I'm sure there is. Hundred um, percent. I'm open to exploring all sorts of avenues. So yeah, I, I really do appreciate this. I'll put a link to this in the podcast called uh, Spank the Car Fiction and Poetry 2020 Anthology. Pick it up there, support Chris, and yeah, fuck yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, I I do want to take this time, though, to thank everybody who participated in voting for me. Um, Last time I was on the show, I was nominated for the Emerging Writers Award for Finn Almost Buys a Goldfish, and uh, a month later, I was declared the winner, and the publisher, exact words were that I received a zillion votes. So I felt very validated. I felt like the prettiest girl at the ball. Um, you know, unfortunately at midnight, everything will turn to shit, but you know, no, just kidding. Um, well, you, you are, you are a very pretty girl. That, yes. That's, that's going to be the title of this episode. Yes. Chris I, Cooper, I, the prettiest girl. I feel like I'm really blossoming right now. Um. <laughs> while, while we're also thanking people. I want to take this time for uh, I, I want to take this time to thank Dave Robinson uh, for for making the trip yeah. up here. Yeah, I, of course I'm joking because yeah. he didn't come. Yeah, yeah fuck he Dave. he just he he hiked mm-hmm. the Appalachian Trail. He did he did a hundred mile trek where he almost died. Uh-huh. Came on the podcast and and talked about it. Yeah, and then I told him, hey, do you want to come up for the podcast? Uh, in, in mid December when mm-hmm. we're recording this yeah. and he's like, Oh yeah, dude, fuck. Yeah. I just did the hardest trek of my life. Of course mm-hmm. I'm going to come up. Mm-hmm. And then I said, it's with Chris Cooper and he fucking yeah. clicked the phone and, and exactly told me it. never to yeah. fucking talk to him again. Well, so I, I want to thank Dave, uh, for, for almost making the trip up here. Just like Finn almost bought the goldfish. Yeah. Yep. And so <laughs> the reason Dave didn't want to come up here is cause I actually did the 101 mile trek. And, um, he wasn't able to go that extra one mile mm. and, um, but you know, he, he can try it next time. He can, and you, you know. did the 101 mile, mile yeah. track. This is in yeah. 1999. So yeah. like you were like, I was like 10. You, yeah. Yeah. So, um, and you didn't even realize you were trekking. You, no. you just went for a walk and I hunted my own animals and I caught my own fish and I pretty much, you know, I was like full blown nomad out there and I didn't even realize it. And, um, you know, so I feel bad that Dave really had ambitions for going out there and maybe next time he'll, he'll surpass my 101 days, but you know, something to look forward to. Maybe next time. And you have to wait it for the the future, the weighted average. Cause of course you did do it when you were 10 years old. Exactly. And so that's like a thousand miles. Oh, absolutely. Today. Yeah. So I, pretty much what we're saying is Dave sucks. Yeah, that's, I, <laughs> I wanted to be the one to say that. I'm yeah. so pissed you yeah. you beat me to the, yeah. the ball. But I the I, I just keep having Dave Robinson back on the podcast because yeah. he, he's so good that he's bad. He's so good on podcasts <laughs> that it, it's it's just yeah. it, he he just makes me feel so good every time I talk. He's to very him. loquacious. And yeah, he's very agreeable, and he gives you that positive reinforcement. Yeah, you know, I don't think he's ever used the sauna that's behind him in the YouTube videos. I, I think yeah, I it's know. fake. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. It could be a, it could be clever Photoshop, but <laughs> no, I, yeah, it's a, it's a yeah. zoom background. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. He has a yeah, sauna exactly. that's a zoom background yeah. every time we do the podcast. Yeah. And yeah. he just happens to be naked and you know, yeah. home and does that. alternating yeah. flexing the pecs for an hour and a half straight, which I appreciate. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I love getting blood flow to other places besides my brain. So exactly. It helps me focus yeah. during the podcast. Very you don't want too, too much blood in the head. No, that's always a bad thing. Yeah. You know, um, 
but in all honesty though, Dave, I love you, dude. Best friend, um, since college, only real true friend that stood by me when I was a complete psychopath. So I, I, I can't not say that, like, I got to give him a shout out. And when we talk about bleed, um, yes. part of bleed was inspired by an incident that occurred in college with Dave. Yes. Let's, so, let's get into bleed. That, that's okay. literally the, the first thing that I have. Let's fucking do it. On let's my notes. Fucking fuck. So what, what was this incident in college? <laughs> what, what moved you to, to write bleed? What, what was the experience that inspired this, yeah. this story? So before I kind of delineate on that whole, um, experience of, of crafting the story, um, I wanted to kind of talk about this past year and then it will make a little more sense of, of where the creativity and the catalyst for this story originated from. Yeah, take us back. So in I appeared December last year on this podcast, mm -hmm. and I was nominated for the Emerging Writers Award for Finn Almost Buys Goldfish. The following month, I won the Finn Almost Buys Goldfish Award for Emerging Writers Award. Um, and I, I think I briefly alluded to that I was going to, I was going to work on my novel. And my novel right now is pretty much done. I just have to tighten up the last chapter. But I spent from my last appearance until May or July just diving into this story. And it's much different than a short story because a short story, you have a few pages and it's over once, the, once, once, you, once you reach the conclusion. It's not something you entirely have to develop with characters, their progression. Um, there's a lot of dynamics. You've got to remember shit that happened in the plot to make sure it adds up in the mm -hmm. future. So I found myself really kind of, and not to be purporting the, the, the tired, um, tortured artist sort of trope, but this novel is is a hundred percent a psychological experiment into the human condition, um, and we could get more into that later on. But it was kind of bringing me into this, like I was getting completely consumed by writing this story. And this past year, I only really put out. I put out a poem. Um, my first poem was called "Sun and Rain," and it was pretty much a um, commentary on how. Um, you know, sun and rain kind of is, is synonymous with pain and pleasure, happiness and sadness. And it was kind of a juxtaposition of how we're, we're always playing off those two emotions and how we're, we've been conditioned to prioritize happiness since a young age. And, um, it's a very short poem. And, and in the end, it just says, you know, you can't really know what happiness is without pain. You don't know how good the sun is without the rain. Mm -hmm. And that was like that whole idea. And I was giving like these little sort of micro fiction, poetry dabs, um, that were inspired by the work I was writing on. And, um, then around April, I really started diving back into philosophy, a lot of nihilism, a lot of ex existentialism. Frederick Nietzsche was reading a lot of his work. Um, and I was really just engulfed in my work into the psychological elements of it. And it's very dark. Um, Obviously, it's going to deal with like suicidal ideation, depression, anxiety, things like that. And I found that the more I was writing, the more I was, it was reflecting onto me. I started feeling like dark, depressive, just like really, uns like 
just really into the, that, that place that you don't want to go in your subconscious. And, um, to play off of that, I was getting a lot of success. Like this past year has been momentous for my writing career. Um, it just started out as a hobby. And then I started throwing out publishing, you know, short stories, you know, my fiction novel, Fix It Broken didn't get published. So I was just like, all right, you know, let me try fiction, short stories. And now like, to see that I have like a following and I have like this eclectic sort of group that's comments on my stories mm -hmm. and interacts with me. And, and it's, I'll wake up one day and somebody will be in Barnes and Noble and they'll tag me and they're reading one of my short stories. It's just like, it's, it's there's a, there's a, there's a couple comment threads on your stories where you would think it's a Facebook family political <laughs> argument. Like that's how many yeah. comments it's like the, yeah you see someone post something uh, that that has something to do with politics and, and whatever, like that one family member that voted for Trump and then that gets 75 comments underneath of people yeah. giving their takes. Yep. That's how many people have commented on yeah. some of the stories that you've written. It, yeah. It's evoking very emotional, sharp responses from readers, which is a great thing because I, you, yeah. you write about such vivid emotional things that people experience. So they're either gonna have one, they're going to react strongly to it. And they, they do that in the comments. And, and I, and I, and honestly, as I write it, I, I'm, I'm trying to be a provocateur. Like I'm trying to provoke people to respond, to either get happy about it, to get pissed off at it. Like I want to evoke emotion. That's what I'm trying to do to you. And whether it's something you agree with or something you don't agree with, I, 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 I kind of, pick apart your human psyche. I, I know things that will get people going that will cause or elicit a reaction. And that's stuff that I focus on going forward. But, um, with this like group of people that are always commenting and, and sharing my stuff, like it's been transcendent as a writer's standing point to know that I have a following that's constantly waiting for something to come out. But at the same time, I noticed this past year, um, the negative component of that, where I am, I started to kind of lose myself a little bit where I'm like, oh, I'm getting mild success. Like I'm getting money from Barnes and Noble. I'm getting it from Amazon. Like I, I'm getting paid for these short stories and I'm winning an award. And now I'm feeling like, okay, now I have expectations. Now I have to have a deadline. Now I need to get something out by June. And then I got to get something out by November. And I'm like, I find myself forcing myself to write mm. and the stuff I'm writing about, I'm just like, this is kind of bullshit. Like, well, you know. Yeah. Oh, hey there. On this episode of the podcast with Chris Cooper, we will discuss a quote by Nietzsche, by the philosopher Frederick Nietzsche about staring into the abyss. And Nietzsche says, quote, he who fights with monsters should be careful lest he thereby become a monster. And if thou gaze long enough into the abyss, the abyss will also gaze into thee. This means that if you think about evil too much, if you contemplate evil too much, you might become evil yourself. And you know what is evil? Charging people too much for premium podcasts. That's why on Auxora Premium, we charge $4.75 per month for two bonus episodes every single month, exclusive AMA episodes where you can ask me anything, the ability to, to, to submit. I can't even talk right now. That's how excited I am about the, the non-evilness 
of Auxoil Premium. Not that we don't talk about evil topics, because we will get into some, you know, dark topics, uh, twisted topics, but also happy and exciting topics too. But the point is, you're paying $4.75 per month for two bonus episodes, Ask Me Anything episodes, the ability to submit topic suggestions and questions for the podcast. And you also get access to all of the archived bonus episodes on Auxor Premium. There's over 25 hours of premium content there right now where you can binge all of that at your leisure. Go to auxoro.supercast.com. That is A-U-X-O-R-O.supercast.com and subscribe today to join the Auxoro Premium Gang. Now, back to the episode with Chris Cooper. I hear a lot of stand-up <coughs> comics talk about that where you have your entire life to get out your first good five minutes or, or your first good special. Mm -hmm. And then once people like it, like once it pops, then that starts the clock on you having to put out something once every six months yeah. or once a year. You, can, you can't sit back and take five years and yeah. like people do Frank Ocean. I don't know if you listen to Frank Ocean, mm -hmm. but he basically puts out an album and then he'll disappear for four or five years <laughs> and then come it. back. And part of me thinks that's the way to do it. Just give people what they want and then disappear, go live your life and then come back. But again, I'm also addicted to putting content out yeah. for good or bad. You're a creator. Yeah. And that's that's what gives you that that validation and and philosophy will 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 advocate for that. Like that is the biggest way to combat existential negativity and nihilism is to create. Um, so I totally understand that. And but for me, like this was so much fun. Writing for mm -hmm. me was always fun. And then I'm slowly starting to to realize this is turning into a fucking job. And I'm like, this is not good. I'm like, this is not good for me mentally and it's not good for me creativity wise. So I took a break from trying to write. Like last year I had three stories out. This year Bleed was my only short story. And I took a break from my novel to dive into Bleed. Um, and it's, it's a 1600 word short story. And it's something that came out just completely natural. Um, and to kind of put together the pieces of how this fusion came together. Um, <laughs> so Dave Robinson, mm. um, we were roommates for four years of college. And our senior year, I can't remember if it was during an exam week or what was going on, but we were living in a condo and somebody had had a package delivered and there was a cardboard box that, you know, we were so fucking lazy. We didn't turn, you know, get rid of anything, any mm -hmm. garbage recycle. We just left that shit there. And there was this big box on our table and we would come in from class or from whenever and we'd pick up a knife and we'd just go pop, 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 pop. You know, like real visceral, yeah. instinctual like, aggression. Yeah. And like the give of it, the popping, like it was the best sort of feeling. It's that transitory relief of aggression. Yeah. Therapeutic. And absolutely. It was completely cathartic. And we would do that for the whole week. Um, and then one night, one night Dave came home and I forget what happened, but he was super pissed, super perturbed. And he picked up the knife and he stabbed the box. He went back to stab it again. And he hit the table. And when he hit the table, his hand slid all the way down the knife. And he just like lacerated his this was, fingers. This was Dave? Dave Robinson. God yeah. damn. And he was just like, 
oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. And we're like, what's going on? Like, like show us your hand. They're like, no, 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 no. And he like went over to the sink and he was running his hand under the water. And he's like, oh, no, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. I'm like, well, did you look at it? He's like, not yet, not yet. And then I can see him. He's visually perspiring, like just perspiration pouring mm. from him. And he's like blinking slowly, like heavy eyelids. And he's in front of the sink. We're like, dude, show us your hand. <laughs> and he shows us his hand and you could see his fucking tendons, his bone. Oh my And we're God. like, don't panic, but we have got to get you to the hospital. <laughs> yeah. And he went up getting like something like ridiculous. Yeah. Like 50 don't, stitches. don't worry, but call <laughs> yeah. an ambulance. Mm-hmm. So that, you're like, Dave, you're not going to die. And you're looking to your other friend. You're like, you might die. It's, it's, it's I've never bad. seen yeah. something like that before. I was like, holy fucking shit. <laughs> yeah. Calling a priest like no, yeah. Dave, he's the, we, the priest always comes to see yeah. people in the hospital. This isn't, this isn't a bad yeah. thing. I, I, I wish I knew that now. I totally would have fucked with him. I'd be like, dude, you're going to die. Yeah. We're, we're going to have to cut your whole hand off. <laughs> your arm that's gone, man. So, so just like, just complete laceration just through like the tendons, right down. bone like it just, was like fucking terminator too he yeah. shows that it was just like yeah. oh fuck <laughs> i feel i feel like it's almost it's yeah. almost worse to see it because it makes it real because i've had injuries in the past i had a, a gash in my my thigh once where it wasn't all the way to the the tendons or anything but it was worse than okay. it felt uh, yeah it was deeper than it felt and uh probably should have gotten stitches ended up just taking care of it on my own and it was fine. Didn't get infected. I was lucky, but I looked at it and then it made the pain get worse, worse because yeah. I, yeah. it made it real. It, it, felt, it felt, yeah. It, yeah, it felt like maybe it was a centimeter, not even deep. And then I saw it and it looked like it was yeah. an inch in there. I was like, Oh my fucking God, yeah. I'm in pain now. Yeah. Oh, fuck, fuck. So it's like, you that almost don't even want to look. Yeah. will exacerbate any yeah. sort of condition. Yeah. yeah. So, so that, instance happened like a decade ago. So I stored that in my hippocampus, my memory box for later. Cause I'm like, that's a fucking gem of a story to tell. And then last year, the, the other piece to this puzzle, I was in my kitchen and I was super stressed just from doing a lot of freelance work. My full-time job sucked, sucks because it was just like, I was writing about shit. I don't want to write about. I was writing about like plush rugs and home decor accents and composite wooden nightstands and just all that just 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 life filling riveting topics yeah just fucking edward norton like martha stewart porno oh absolutely yeah like rugs with plush high piles you know they're great they're super soft underneath your foot like Making making uh, housewives come across <laughs> absolutely, the country. Just, just man. The, like description. Fucking, if you don't have a sherpa blanket, you better fucking get your shit together by now. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna get me some. So so anyway, um, I just had one of those days, and it was just the last drop in the metaphorical bucket of neurosis, where I'm trying to open my kitchen drawer. And it's the timeless tale of it's fucking stuck on something, right? And I'm just in no fucking mood and I'm yanking it and I'm yanking it and I just lose it. And I just reach into the back of the drawer and I grab whatever the fuck is there and it's a serrated knife and I cut my finger, right? And it pisses me off to even further end. Not that it hurts, but pull it out, my hand's covered in blood and it's it's not a bad cut whatsoever. It's just that you know, that, that tedious sort of cut where it just doesn't stop bleeding mm. and it's just pulling, pulling. So that 
drawers right there. I'm next to the sink and I'm running my finger down this uh, and with the faucet, just right here, just like this. And before I know it, I'm in this like nebulous sort of state where I'm just transfixed on the water cascading onto my hand and it's pouring into the basin of the sink and the blood is splattering there. It was like the soothing sort of um, acoustics. It was just mm. so fucking trippy. And I'm just sitting there watching it that just my hand would be red, covered in blood and then wash away. Then it'd, it'd replenish, mm. wash away, replenish, wash away. And I was just completely paralyzed. And I'm taking in the sensations, the sounds, the sights. I'm ins inspecting the the um, the hand soap that's on the counter there. And before I know it, like my thoughts start metaphorically bleeding. And I'm just like, like, what am I doing? Like with my life? Like, am I satisfied where I'm at? Like, what's my life gonna look like in 10 years? Like, who's gonna be around here? Like, what job am I gonna have? Like, and like it was just a torrential downpour of just disturbing thoughts and not so much disturbing, but just this rumination, constant wondering. And in the, in, in that moment, I felt like I was outside of my body and it was like 30 minutes of me just standing in front of my sink, like fixated on this fucking yeah. cut. Like in a meditative state. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, in that moment, I'm like, I need to do something with this in a story. So I, I jotted that down. Like my notepad and my phone is full of just like fragments of ideas that I want to kind of touch upon. And so May came around and I'm, and most of my audience is reaching out to me. They're like, when's your next short story? When's your novel coming out? When's this and that? And like, it was starting to fuck with me a little bit, mm. you know, because I had put out a lot of short stories before I did a poem. I did this micro fiction story about choose and it's like 50 words and it's about how your choices all lead you through your life. You know, obviously there's extenuating circumstances where things happen around you that you can't control, but the majority of your life and your culmination of your life is led by the choices that you make throughout it. So that, that was another piece I did, but people were just fucking like banging on my door. Like, not banging on my door, but but pounding on my my direct messages on on Instagram. Literally, fans outside in your yard yeah, pounding on your door. Yeah. <gasps> Open the fuck up! <laughs> give me give me the next story, oh. and your family will be okay. But, but like, so but that's great. Like, you have that you have uh, such a a close and emotionally tied fan base. But to it's your work. close. But I don't I don't really know these people. Yeah. I've had a lot of people. But they know you. Well, I've, I've had yeah. like several people with blue check marks reach out to me about anxiety. Like saw your episode, like, and then thinking I'm like a psychologist and I can diagnose them. Can you help me through panic attack? And I'm like, I can give you advice, but I'm like, I'm not a fucking doctor. You know? Yeah. So I was getting, so, so what I'm trying to say is, is that there was a dichotomy of, of emotions last year. On one hand, I was getting this mild success. I was getting a great following, but then I felt like I had this self-applied pressure and it kind of came to a head with this story bleed that I put together. And the title of the story bleed is a nod to Ernest Hemingway. One of his most iconic quotes is on writing. And it's, there's nothing to writing. All you have to do is sit down at a typewriter and bleed. And it's 
so I, I, I pretty much did that. I mean, obviously it wasn't a typewriter. It was a contemporary typewriter. It was a, you know, my laptop and I sat down and I went right into it. And it's, it's a very, the one thing I love about this story is there are many layers to it. You could read it at the surface layer for what it is, or you can examine the symbolism, mm. the references, uh, to philosophy. Um, and that's what really, I think, made a big impression for for the outlets that are featuring it and want to reprint it and put it in bookstores. May I read the intro? Absolutely. Yep. Mm -hmm. Just to give people a little taste. Mm -hmm. So Bleed by Chris Cooper. Kevin has cut his hand and it's really bleeding, pooling into the sink as the water cascades onto his fingers from the kitchen faucet. He's not panicked though. It's just stinging as he holds it underneath the spout the rapids rush masking the sides of his fingers and he can barely see the wound, just the streaks of red that ruddle the water. It's rather mesmerizing though, watching the water pass, millions of harmonized droplets falling at once, synchronizing as it pours and Kevin forgets he's even wounded for a moment. Yeah. That's and, that, and that's the powerful. And it's, it's one of those stories that doesn't have a buildup. It, it goes, brings you right into the action. And the entire story takes place in one spot in front of his kitchen sink. And to kind of dive into the symbolism of it is he's bleeding, right? Physically, mm -hmm. but that's not where the pain is coming from. The pain is coming internally. He's bleeding yeah. figuratively. And the worst kind of pain isn't the pain that is on the outside. It's not a bruise. It's not a black and blue. It's not a laceration per se. It's internally, it's in your heart, it's in your mind. And I wanted to juxtapose these two elements where, yes, he's bleeding figuratively, but that's not really where the issue is at. Mm. It's his internal trauma that is bleeding, it's pouring through. So the rest of the story, he's, he's got his hand cut, but you, you, come to or you come to learn that he's dealing with a divorce from a year now. He's learned that his wife that he was married to, um, they didn't have children together. And now he just found out that she had her first child. Um, yeah. you know, like these really poignant aspects of someone's life that you can repress for so long until it just starts to bleed. Yeah. And I, I love the way that it started right in the middle of the action. Mm -hmm. Like there's no buildup. It's just, if it was a movie, you feel like you just come in and you see the guy holding his hand in the sink and you don't, you, f you feel, you feel what's happening, even though you don't know why at mm -hmm. first, all you know is the physical and then you find out the emotional elements that went into it later. But I love the way it kind of zoomed in on this snapshot really quickly. And then it zoomed out throughout the story. Yeah. It's like almost like the opposite approach where it's like, start right, start just in the middle of the action yeah. and then explain some of the things that went on later. Mm -hmm. And so when you progress through the story, you'll see a lot of juxtapositions of um, physical like ways of, of applying care and bandages um, next to emotional ways of protecting yourself. So he's taken his hand and he's swathed it in a bundle of paper towels and he's not ready to look at it yet, 
just like his self, like his subconscious, you know, mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, we have a subconscious that is stored with trauma and issues and conflicts that we tend to avoid. And all of this story, all of the actions in this story are pretty much metaphors for depression and anxiety and how we go through our day, how we deal with those sort of things. And one of the aspects in the story he talks about is is that he's still transfixed on the vibrant color of his blood and it elicits a memory of his mother and father's matching Christmas sweaters. And that elicits a deeper sense of nostalgia, which hurts even more than Mm -hmm. his actual cut. Yeah. One of the things that I wrote down after I read the story, probably the the fifth or sixth time, because I went through it a bunch of times before this podcast, and it's, it's similar to what you were saying about two minutes ago, but I wrote down that Kevin was bleeding out emotionally mm-hmm. and the physical was the final stage. Exactly. And, and I, I thought in my head that there are people that bleed out all the time emotionally, but we don't stop on the sidewalk because it's exactly. not a physical cut. Exactly. Like, yeah. so, like someone, yeah. someone that is about to go into a building and press the 45th floor in the elevator and go jump off the building. Mm-hmm. When you pass that person on the street, there's no signs of emotional bleeding and emotional exactly. scarring. Mm-hmm. Someone that had just got the shit kicked out of them by their boyfriend walking down the sidewalk. You don't see, unless there's some sort of black eye or something, there's nothing physical that says that this person is going through extreme anxiety and extreme depression and extreme emotional bleeding on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. But if someone just got shot in the stomach and they're walking down the sidewalk, like, help me, help me, there's going to be 20 people that come over and hopefully today, and because so, mm-hmm. some people will just film it and watch, watch oh, the person. Oh, I know. Well, now it but is. like it, most people, people will at least call the cops. Like someone will go over and apply pressure. And, so, and yeah. because you see the physical bleeding, you you see, you know, if someone, a construction worker at a construction site fucking cuts his hand off mm-hmm. and he's like, oh, fuck, like everyone else on the construction site is going to go over and assist that person. But if someone you know, just got destroyed by a breakup and doesn't want to live the next day. There's no sign for you to enter their world. There's no portal of blood Mm -hmm. for, there's no portal of suffering or there is, but it's not obvious unless you talk to the person. If you could get an introspection, if you could take a visual light to see what kind of damage they have on the inside, you would probably be like, holy shit, like you need some help. You probably stop people. If there was, and there may be some sort of emotional spectrum that we can't pick up as human beings. Like maybe there's some sort of emotional aura Mm -hmm. that connects us all that's can be visually picked up, but we just don't have the technology Mm -hmm. to do that yet. But if you saw someone walking down the street and they were, they were bleeding, but it wasn't a physical injury. It was like, something, something depressive or, or, or maybe they're having a panic attack and you picked it up in your vision. Maybe they're, they're, uh, like they just turned black or something mm-hmm. and we have the technology in the future to see them. You would go over, you could go over that person and say like, Hey, I see you're having a panic attack. Yep. I just want to let you know, you know, if I, I can talk to you for a few minutes before I go to the coffee shop, like if you want to talk, like I'll just talk about whatever you could just listen if you want. Or if you saw someone like different, different things you could pick up in the visual 
spectrum mm-hmm. that signal emotional suffering so that you could go over and help someone mm-hmm. like they just got shot yeah. or they but that got shit an injury. takes yeah. time you know what i mean yeah. like you have to care to a deeper level you have to ask you have to prod and and, and read up on their nonverbal you know, communication, their, their body language. And, you know, it's so much easier when there's a cut, you can identify it. This is what's hurting me. This is what's, what's, what's bothering me. You know, when it comes to mental illness, you can't always point to it, you know, and that's what makes it so fucking deadly. And it's something that people need to start recognizing. Um, and it's not like, you know, I've had people reach out to me and they're just like, this is so cool, man. Like, I love this cool, dark shit. And I'm like, yeah, like that's cool and all, but like, it's, I'm not trying to make it cool. Like, I'm just trying to show you how authentic this is. Mm. I'm trying to shed light on what it's like, you know? Yeah. And I could have wrote this story without him being cut, you know, but it's not going to transfer. It's not going to resonate the same way where, you yeah, because we're so visual. We're, we're so, so visual we're creatures. Visual if, if something yeah. doesn't matter. He's not cut. He's not hurt. He's fine. Yeah. You know? And we do that with ourselves too. If we go through a breakup, if we, you know, lose a lose a parent, you can push yeah. down that shit emotionally yeah. because there's Impressive. nothing physical bleeding out of you. There's no, yeah. you, you can convince yourself that you don't need any sort of medical or psychological attention because you look at yourself in the mirror and you're fine, but you know something's wrong on no, the inside. I know. And that's the worst kind of pain. I, I feel like if you can't identify where it's coming from, it's something you feel like you can't yeah. fix it. I feel like there's nothing worse than that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There, 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 uh, maybe in the future, there'll be some sort of emotional EMT service where <laughs> if someone's about, if there, yeah. if there's some sort of aura or signal you could pick up from people that yeah. are going to harm themselves, or maybe they just are so yeah. emotionally down that they're in a very unstable state. If you could just apply a bandage before they get the help that they need, like, mm-hmm. cause it takes years and years, like you said, kind of like if someone got shot on the street mm-hmm. and you could apply pressure until the real doctors showed up and then they'd have to sew up the wound and heal it. You could you maybe talk to that person for five minutes and then maybe that day they don't hurt themselves or they don't kill themselves. But, and then you never know what that could spiral up into. But the difference between that is it's like you see a gunshot wound. Okay. I've got to put pressure on the wound. I got to make sure he doesn't bleed out. Like it's procedural. Mm-hmm. When it comes to a mental health issue, there's no one size fits all. It requires... Mm-hmm a lot more extensive sort of involvement, Mm -hmm. you know? And I feel like unless you're an empath, unless you're somebody that's compassionate, you're not going to really be able to help somebody. And, and, and and I'm not trying to diminish, um, you know, these clinics that are, you know, psychologists, psychologists or psychiatrists, but, you know, I've been to at least 10 and, it's really tough when you're in that mindset, you want to feel like you can identify with somebody. You want to mm-hmm. feel like you have a connection with somebody. And most of the, t- most of the time, these fuckers are just doing their jobs, mm-hmm. you know? And that's what makes it even harder is because if you don't feel that safe, like if you go back to um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the number one need is that sense of feeling safe. Yeah. Or, or, or it might even be the second one, but it's like 
that the physiological, you need the water, you need food, but the second one is that safety, that shelter. Yeah. Well, I think you, you can have procedural flexibility when you encounter someone that's either in a, maybe a highly depressed state or a highly anxious state where you can have, you can have a basic procedure and then have wiggle room within that procedure, depending on how that man or woman presents themselves. And, uh, even medically, sometimes you'll, you'll have to improvise on the fly, performing a surgery. Some, some things aren't always cookie cutter. I, I was listening to, uh, Tim Ferriss on Ari Shafir's podcast, Skeptic Tank. And, okay. and I've listened to a bunch of Tim Ferriss episodes where he's been the host on the Tim Ferriss show. Mm-hmm. This is the first time I've ever listened to him be interviewed. And Ari Shafir is much less methodical with his interview approach. Just talks to people. He's a stand-up comedian, great, great comedian. And he's kind of just, he, he, it doesn't seem like he has a plan. He just goes with the flow. And, so, and they got into this whole discussion about, Tim Ferriss at Burning Man and he volunteered, Tim did, to help people get through anxiety attacks, whether they were on drugs or not on drugs. Yeah. And he was describing this these procedures that you could use to de-escalate a highly anxious state. So one of the things was, especially if someone's on drugs, when they believe that something is happening to them, like let's say there's a giant monster shaped as a a, a light fixture, a awesome. Christmas tree fixture chasing me. Yeah. And this person says, oh my God, like I walk past this tree and it turned into a light monster and everywhere I go, it's chasing me. You gotta go. You don't it. deny that person's experience. You, you, but you don't tell them it's true either. You, you kind of say, oh, that seems scary. Like that, that would, that's a scary experience. You don't, you don't tell them that it's not there because- you can't be logical with someone who's having a yeah. panic attack because yeah. panic attacks aren't aren't logical. We got into a bunch of that last time too, where it's like this irrational fear. And you tell someone having the panic attack, like nothing's wrong. What are you yeah. freaking out about? It's yeah. like, yeah, I know nothing's wrong. That's why I'm fucking freaking out because yeah. I'm sitting in my living room right now. I feel like my heart's about to fucking explode. Yep. Um, and so you kind of, you acknowledge and diffuse is, is, is what it sounds like. Yeah. So th- there could, I think there could be, some sort of procedure if if the average person had a, a very basic training to de-escalate a panic attack in public and you know maybe th- that became more of a norm where if you were having a panic attack you th- there were people at venues like music festivals that like burning man that you could go to that have a certain color shirt or something or whatever that are trained to be a, an ear really? where you're like, yeah, maybe I'm, you know, okay. may, that is, that is scary. That, that is weird. I mean, yeah. maybe we should have some shit like that. It should be yeah. more, I think it could be more widespread, like some sort of procedural de-escalation of anxiety. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think that's great. I, I mean, you know, I know when I started first in dealing with anxiety and depression, it was, you know, 10 plus years ago. And, it was such a foreign sort of concept to me where if I had even a fifth of the knowledge I had now, I think I would have been much more better off. Um, but it was one of those things that was stigmatized, you know, yeah. and, and nobody really, because you couldn't see actual a pain or an impetus for your condition. They just said, go fucking watch TV or, you know, take yeah. a breathing exercise. And it's, 
Yeah. It's, unfortunately, it's not like that. You know? Yeah. No, not at all. W- one of the other things in the story that I love is that you have Kevin poke fun at meditation. And he's like, yeah, this fu- I, tried this fu- I tried this fucking meditation bullshit. And I, I was laughing at it, at, even as someone who meditates, meditate every day. Uh, I meditate every day. I did this morning. I used the, the Sam Harris waking up app. Yeah. And I know it's ridiculous. Like I, I can see the ridiculousness in meditation. And sometimes I even tell myself that where I'm like, I'm sitting on a fucking pillow with my own thoughts and some days they're just fucking racing around my head and this is supposed to make me feel better. Like, yeah. shouldn't I just listen to some music or a podcast or do something else to distract me from yeah. this bullshit? What's the part in the story? What, do you have the line? I, I don't have the exact oh, okay. line, but he, okay. he mentions, uh, he mentions something about meditation. He's trying to meditate, but he can't bear to be alone with his thoughts. And he keeps thinking about where he left his birth certificate. Yes. <laughs> and then he's, he's thinking about, uh, the Facebook photo he saw, of his ex-wife. Yeah. And, and I also connected that towards the, the, like the middle end of the story where he, you know, like the actual thought of death is starting to creep in to his mind. Yeah. And he's so present. He has like this calm presence about him, kind of like what you were describing when you're watching your own figure, uh, your own finger bleed out in the faucet, Mm -hmm. draining into the basin. The the possibility of death brings Kevin to extreme presence. Mm -hmm. And before that, he kind of poked fun at meditation. But one of the things that you can do in meditation is you think about your own death. Yeah. And so... For me, it was kind of funny that that he he was like, oh, you know, meditation, whatever, like, fuck my wife, ex-wife just like saw the Facebook photo, like all the shit's going on in my life. And he's, then all that kind of clears away once it gets worse and he's just thinking about the current situation and yeah. death, the possibility of it and probably losing blood and all this other shit going on in his head brought him into this moment of extreme presence. So in a, in a sick way, I think it's, uh, not an ad for meditation, but it's like, think, uh, a good transition into thinking about death can actually give you presence. Cause the meditation could be a bunch of things. You don't have to sit on a pillow and listen to Sam Harris. You could, you know, think you could memento mori like Stoics did meditate on your own Mm -hmm. death. You could write Memento Morium, uh, remember to, you will die. Yeah. yeah. Just like there, there's so many ways to bring yourself yeah. back to presence. So whatever works to, works for you and for him, you know, and for everyone confronting your own death is, confronting your own death makes it impossible to not be present. Well, and that's a really good point because in the story, everyone who reads that is like, this is by far the darkest story you've written. You know, his... Was this not a comedy? I, th- I thought it was supposed to be a comedy. Like, <laughs> so like it, The Martian was a comedy. and, and so, I so it had that those absurdist sort of moments where he's calling 911 and he's dreamy and he's lethargic and he's just like, you know what, let me get a pizza. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, those, you know, comedic uh, relief there. But... You, when you read the story, you're like, this is super fucking sad. This is terrifying. This is jarring. But towards the end, he changes his perception. And that goes back to the absurd. 
he is envisioning himself with his mother, who is no longer around, and she's right by his side, mm-hmm. and he's laying in front of his sink, and the drain is clogged because he's stuffed it with all of his paper towels, and he's laying on the ground, and he can feel the clogged sink pouring over, and everything is okay because he's picturing it as a shower and he's back as a kid and he's taking a shower after playing with his friends in the neighborhood. And the way this story came about is, is like, I have been taking such a deep dive into this concept of happiness and like how it's been commercialized. Um, you know, open happiness, uh, taste happiness, experience happiness. So it's ubiquitous. Like if you're not happy, something's wrong. If you're not constantly happy. Yeah. And we've been conditioned since we were like toddlers, you know, yeah, drawing fucking happy suns in the skies. Like, and it's, it's not like that. It's so, that is the complete opposite. And it's, and it's, I feel like it distorts our minds, you know, because we're not, in a state of constant happiness. It's not a destination, something that we work on. And when it comes back to philosophy, it's whatever brings you that happiness, regardless of how ridiculous or absurd it is. You know, at the end of the day, everyone's subjectivity, um, you know, when it comes to happiness is, is their own personal choice. Yeah. And when you read that story, you know, in the beginning, he's miserable. He's, you read that he's, he's tried, you know, um, journaling, he's tried meditation and, and then you come to find out that he, he kicked in his TV, you know, those were his, his, um, you know, anxiety sort of outlets. Um, and then by the end, his disposition has changed completely. He's fucking finally happy. Yeah. You know, and he might be bleeding out. He might be laying by his sink, hallucinating. Yeah. But the motherfucker is happy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. To to me, I would say it's, it struck me that he was at peace. He Mm -hmm. definitely, there were definitely, for me, my interpretation of it was there, there are flecks of happiness, but he ultimately had a moment of peace and sometimes, or for me, a lot of times, happiness is this thing that's commercialized, like you were saying, that you're yeah, supposed absolutely. to want, you're supposed to always want to have this kind of giddy feeling. And if you don't have that giddy feeling with everything you're doing, then something, something is wrong. Is, yep. But you always have access to some sort of peace, but you don't always have access to happiness. So I, I've been so sad and upset and depressed, but also have had moments of peace within that sadness during my life where I'm like, shit is so fucked right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm breathing calmly and I feel like my body's relaxed. Yeah. And I feel peaceful, but I'm also so fucking sad or depressed about something. Melancholy. Yeah. And I don't want to be happy in that moment. Like mm-hmm. the happiness would be a horrible thing in that moment because it wouldn't be the right emotion. I'd be faking the happiness like we're kind of taught to do in a lot of ways. So Mm -hmm. to me, it it brought him, it brought Kevin peace where it was finally this, it it was almost like all those options that he was talking about earlier in the story. What, you know, what's going to happen with his ex-wife? You know, does she give a shit about him? He obviously wasn't over that. 
and then he his, his job and yeah you know, he's uh, he's getting denied LinkedIn getting to, yeah getting yeah getting the <laughs> you know you mm. LinkedIn is its own its own hell. <laughs> well, he also talks about how he's on social media. Yes, he, he just watches everybody's yeah, stories, and, but he has no meaningful relationship. And it's like, oh my god, I'm bleeding out. All of those options it are is. done now. I don't. I only have to worry about one thing. And it's that, you know, this may be it. And the taking away of all these options is allows you to be extremely present because you're not, for the first time in your life, you're not thinking 100%. long-term. You're just, yep. you, you can only think about now. In that moment. Yep. Yep. And there's uh so the deeper substratum of there, there's a, there's, there's two philosophical tie-ins. So um, the main one is, is that there's a reference there when he's gazing into the sink um, and he's, it says, he mentions that he's gazing into the abyss and that is a nod to Friedrich Nietzsche, German philosopher, his most iconic quote, um, is if you gaze into the abyss, eventually the, the abyss will gaze back into you. Mm. And it had a negative connotation back in the day where he was referencing, like, if you study monsters, you're more than likely to become a monster. Um, and this is sort of the nihilistic existential, um, subterranean aspect of this story because he, you can become like anything Whatever you obsess about, whatever you're focusing on day to day, your thoughts, whatever you spend your time engaging with, eventually you will become that, whether it's good or bad. And then in this story, he is engaging constantly with these invasive thoughts, these suicidal ideation, and it's becoming him. Yeah. And, um, you know, his biggest issue is not that he's cut, right? It's that he's got another urge to go and pick that knife up and finish, yeah, the, finish job. the job. And part of me was wondering, was the first cut an accident too, or was it? Exactly. It's And it's up to the, the interpretation, but yeah. it's like, did he, you now know, maybe, you, maybe he loosened his grip on that one yeah. and you almost, cause you can trick yourself. People do it all the time. They lie and then they tell them I've done Adjusted. it. I lie and then I tell myself the lie so many times that I begin to believe that it's the truth. And then, you know, he loosens his grip on the knife and you mm -hmm. fucking slice and you're like, Oh, oh my God, you know, I can't believe that happened. But in the back of your mind, you know, mm -hmm. that you fucking, there was a conscious loosening of the grip on that last fucking yeah. slice. Now, do you think that he dies in the end or what's your interpretation? I, I, I don't think he's dead. I actually, that was actually mm -hmm. my second, my second, uh, through line thought of the stories that I wrote, he's not dead. Okay. I think, and, and you don't have to answer this because it's it's up for interpretation. Yeah. People want to very read. ambiguous. Yeah. I think that he early earlier on in the story, there was either someone in the vicinity what in in the house or the building maybe someone he was in contact with that was kind of a outside spectator but not directly involved with what was happening and he called he actually called 911 so that the 911 call was not a hallucination yeah, yeah but he starts hallucinating and you even say that when his mom comes into the story at the end and she puts the hand on his back yeah. and 
he thinks, oh, like, you know, my mom's here. How, how great is this? I think the mom is actually someone else either. Okay. Like either a responder. Yeah, like, not, I don't think it's a responder because the, the mom says help is on the way. Yeah. And I don't think he was hallucinating the voice. He was uh, hallucinating the voice, but I think he was hallucinating the person, like the figure who it was. Okay. Because the 911 call, mm-hmm. that would be... I think it's tougher to hallucinate in a conversation than it is to kind of like mistake a figure, especially when you lose a lot of blood, you get tunnel vision and, and shit starts to close in. And like, it's almost like you're squinting your eyes a little bit. And you're not really sure what's what. Yeah. And it goes in and out. So I think he he heard the conversation. The person was actually saying help was on the way, which he thought was his mom, but was actually someone else who wasn't a first responder either. I don't know how close it, it Catherine is the name of the his wife. I don't know how close Catherine lived to him. Maybe he sent her some sort of concerning message before the whole incident. Maybe he yeah. was like, I'm going to fucking do something to myself. Like, I don't know. Maybe he just, before he cut his hand, he shot off something to her and she was worried and, and was able to get yeah. to him. And she walked in and was like, don't worry, helps on the way. Cause that's very, that's kind of like a very, X thing to say. You don't want to say yeah. something emotional, mm-hmm. but you want to let the person know that they're okay because yeah. you don't want them to confuse the situation with like, oh, I still want to be with you. It's like, no, I'm here because you're in trouble and help's going to come. So I think it's either maybe another tenant close by, another homeowner, apartment building, whatever it, the, he was living, or Catherine. Okay. I, okay. And yeah. I, I, I think he... Uh, I, I don't know if he's still alive, but I, I do think that it was not his mom okay. for sure. Like yeah. it, like it wasn't, yeah. well, it was definitely someone, that. it was definitely someone yeah. that I, I don't think, uh, it was just a hallucination. Mm. I think it was a hallucination of someone else that was actually there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you, you'll see that a lot of times with people that undergo trauma is like, especially if their parents aren't alive, you know, they were the first kind of symbol of um, sanctity or sanctuary, um, you know, their savior. So anytime they undergo some sort of traumatic experience, they'll imagine that their mom or their, their dad will be there because those were the first caregivers, you know, during their lives. So, uh, in a sense, he's almost reverting back to his id, you know, when it comes to psychology and, um, you know, and, and I feel like that's ubiquitous in terms of, of most people, you know, if you're in a dark, you know, shitty, dejected spot, if you don't have a significant other, you know, who do you want there next to you? Pro- probably your parents, you know? Yeah. So. Um, yeah. The, the part about uh, his mom, whether she, uh, whatever your interpretation of his mom is, that made me tear up when I was, when yeah. I was reading it. Cause I, I was thinking about the number of times that I'm going to see my mom and my parents for the rest of my life when it comes down to it, isn't that much. And I, I'm luckier than most people because yeah. I live 45 minutes away. I'm going to go yeah. home later today to go yeah. see my parents. And if I lived out in California or I, I lived uh, outside the country, like like my girlfriend's parents, she was living with me in New York and, and her family's back in France. So she only sees them a few times a year, if that. I can extrapolate my parents' probable lifespan. Uh, you know, let's say they both die on the, the good end. Let's say they live to 95 years old. That'd be a very 
yeah. great life, especially if they were healthy close to the end. Yeah. They're 65 now. So if that's I see right. them five times a year for the next 30 years, that's 150 times I'm going to yeah. see my parents again. So it's great though. <laughs> yeah. Most people don't have that. Yeah. Most people don't have that. And, yeah. and so I, I consider yeah. myself lucky for that. Yeah. Some people, it might be like 20 or 10. Yeah. But you, I, you read that story and it, it struck a chord where you're it like, struck a chord with me because I was like, that's like yeah. the ultimate, no matter what I do or what I accomplish, I will always be my mom's son right. and that, that yeah. I will never outgrow the, the childlike sensation of exactly. the comforting hand on my, because they, the, they created back. you, they instilled. Yeah. I, so I've been reading a lot of Ernest Becker and he is a staunch advocate for the first five years of your life are the most formative in terms of the life that you're going to live, your, your, your traits that you're going to develop, your behaviors that you're going to instill. And that all comes from your parenting, you know? And like, I mean, do you ever think about like in 20 years, like what's your life going to look like? Like my parents going to be around or like when your parents are not going to be around, like how will that affect you? You know, because these are things we can't escape. Yeah. You know? No, I, I, I don't know. I, I think, you know, a lot of your having your parents around is such an emotional safety net. Yeah. And if, if you're lucky enough, a, a financial safety net too. Like if my life went to shit, I could just move back in with my parents 45 minutes away. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it becomes this home and then when your parents are gone, yeah. sure, they might leave you with some stuff, some, some material things, but that emotional... You're an orphan. Yeah. The, the, the emotional feeling of this is going to be okay. Or when, yeah. when I was... Yeah. When, when everything would be chaotic, when I'm a teenager you could always in fall high school, I could, I could always call my mom and, and tell her that, you know, yeah. the world's unfair. Like yeah. this teacher fucking wakes up every morning and thinks about how to make my life a living hell. And yeah. she's just like, all right, all right, like yeah. let's calm down and think mm-hmm. about this, you know? And, and who else are you going to have a conversation like that with? Except your mom, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like I, maybe your partner, maybe I, I'm lucky enough to have two brothers too. So yeah. We also have very strong bonds, especially since we're all also living pretty close to each other as well. That's so we, yeah. we have that close tie. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think I know what I'm going to feel when I lose yeah. my parents because I've seen it so much in movies yeah. and I've read about it and I've heard my friends who have already lost their parents talk about it and, and guests on the podcast talk about it, but nothing ever prepares you for going through that moment. They, they say that it, it's, it instills like a, a permanent sort of melancholy inside your heart because you experience all these moments. And if you have kids and they grow up and everything is great to witness, but at the same time, it's kind of tainted because you don't have your parents there to witness it. Yeah. You know, and it's just, it's one of those aspects of life that is so, it's tough to not be nihilistic when you kind of give yourself these objective sort of viewpoints. Um, There's a quote by Don DeLillo from his novel, White Noise. And he says, there's no irony of the human condition that we're the highest form of beings on the earth, but we're ineffably sad 
because we know what all other animals don't know. And that's that we're going to die. You know, like that's, uh, I was reading some Ernest Becker too. And I watched a couple of videos of, mm -hmm. uh, people explaining his philosophy on YouTube. And one of the things that he believes or he wrote about, he, he said the basic motivation for human behavior is our biological need to control our basic anxiety, to deny the terror of death. So at a basic principle standpoint, everything we do, according to Ernest Becker, is a reaction to, to our own death. impending yeah. doom and yeah. to, to avoid taking Now he end. has another book that comes on and it's called The Denial of Death. And it's mm. all about how we as a society are conditioning ourselves to avoid talking about death, to just pushing it off, to being like, oh, no, 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 let's, let's let's not talk about that. Let's put on Disney plus and let's watch this very wholesome movie movie here. And we don't really understand. I mean, the one thing about life is that we are all going to experience death. Like that is certain, you know, but while we're alive, we're doing everything we can to avoid it, Yeah, you know? And in the end, it, it's not preparing us to handle that sort of aspect correctly. Yeah. That it, when I was uh, going through some stuff on Ernest Becker to prepare for this podcast, I, I, it made me think about my own creative spark and internal drive. And it made me question that drive because I, I want to think, oh, I have this creative engine inside me and it churns every day because I just want to put out my thoughts into the yeah. world. And I'm just this creative yeah. uh, <laughs> caterpillar just blossoming and hopefully Beautiful. I'll be rewarded for that someday. You're and I'm like, the main character yeah. in your story. And I'm like, am I just doing this because I'm afraid to die and I want to have these podcasts floating out there to, to be my legacy. Yeah, and every yeah. podcast I record is actually this extremely selfish act of denying my own death and, and living beyond my yeah. physical death and trying as, as hard as I can yeah. to not have a digital death. Yeah. Cause fill the void yeah. as best you can. Yeah. I'm going to take a piss, man. Can we take a Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Because I got to go put some money in my meter here. Go do it. Th yeah. That was a sexual innuendo. Yes. My meter's the asshole and money is Chris's cock. <laughs> Let's do it. So uh, back from this bathroom break. Back. Yes. So one one of the things that we exchanged messages about before the podcast was the, the hedonic treadmill. Yes. Do you, would you want to... Explain what that is mm -hmm. to people, and then we can get into it. I will explain it in the, the most concept. scholarly way. Yes, so, it's gonna go right over my head. No, I'm going to be as least pedagogical as I can be, um, more um, conversationalist. But um, as as I mentioned, I was really getting um, this past year. I was just immersing myself in this novel, mm -hmm. and let me just get this mm -hmm. a closer. Yeah, just. Yeah, get it right there. Oh, it's good to eat it with your tongue. Mm. <laughs> so soft. Oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> just stimulates all my senses. <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah. Don't make me come again. Just, <laughs> I fuck with ASMR, I'm not going to lie. Right? I, I, it, I ASMR can be very soothing mm -hmm. and uh, it, 
like it makes me feel ashamed that I'm so soothed by the ASMR because I'm like, what about this is soothing me? Do it? Do I have some yeah. psychotic thing that I haven't figured out we yet that do. this we this woman breathing into a microphone is putting me at peace? Dude, shout out to Maddie Tingles. He's this overweight um, Asian guy, and he has this most sonorous voice, and he's very breathy. But holy shit, that dude will will soothe me, man. <laughs> Yeah. Tilt that up a little bit towards yep. your... Tilt it. Yep, there you go. Perfect. Yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll indulge with some Maddie Tingles. Check him out Fuck on yeah. YouTube. Um, so the, the hedonic Hedonic treadmill. treadmill. Yeah. So um, I was really kind of exploring... Um, so my, my, my novel that, that I am, I am really honing in on, I'm refining right now. It's, it's 95% complete. I'm going to be pitching it first thing this new year. I didn't want to rush it. I wanted to really kind of relish the process, making sure that I explore all my creativity. I didn't want to leave anything behind. Like I, this novel is super intellectual, super entertaining, um, for the three people that have read it so far, they're like, this hands down is the best book I've read in, in years. I'm offended that I'm not one of them. Well, I sent you my newest short story. You didn't fucking read it. So <laughs> that's cause I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the novel. I know. I'm, I know. I get, I get a, a, there's a shout out to poignancy literary magazine that mm. reaches out to me once a month, ask me about the novel. And I'm like, I'm still working on it. And they reach out to me once a month, ask me for Chris Cooper round two. Do podcast. they really? No, they, they've sent me a, a few messages. <laughs> they're, they're hype about it. They're hype. Like, listen, like I love it. Like never in a million years that I think I develop a fan base and people like would enjoy my shit. Cause I fucking hate myself. Right. Dude, some I, capacity, I, hate, I hate myself know? too. Cause <laughs> I thought I was going to start my own following for Augzoro. Okay. And I've started a cult following for, for Chris Cooper. For through yeah. Augzoro. Yes. I, I feel I feel like yeah. my uh mm -hmm. my cult following that I wanted to be that idea <laughs> has become cannibalized <laughs> by you. So th this is a very hard yeah. conversation for me because okay. you've converted my followers before yeah. I had a chance to. Well, listen, we're gonna start a fight club, and the first rule of fight club is you do not talk about fight club. All right. And so uh, shut the fuck up. Yeah, exactly. Just you too listening to this. Just sh shut your mouth. <laughs> Stop listening. <laughs> oh shit. So the hedonic treadmill. Um and this kind of correlates with this whole concept I've been wrestling with with this commercialization of happiness and you know, um how we are so conditioned to achieve happiness and how we want happiness consistently. We want to wake up and we want to be surrounded with the person we love. We want to wake up and, and bask in the glorious fucking sunlight that's coming in through our window. And we want to love everything. And we just want to have this euphoric fucking bliss at all times. And that's not realistic whatsoever. And this concept of the hedonic treadmill was um, really postulated in the 70s by... Um, Campbell and Brickman and their, their thesis, their paper that came out was called hedonic relativism. And because I'm a writer, I'm just like, I get a hard on for the etymology with these sort of concepts. So hedonic is, um, you know, kind of the adjective form of hedonism. Mm. Everybody knows what hedonism is. It's just the pursuit of pleasure. Yeah. 
um, debauchery to, to, to all that sort of degrees. You know, you could go outside of here and you can attain, you can participate in orgies and, and, and foreign lands. And it's, you know, the name of that, the could cults dose are, each other with Molly yeah, for a podcast. But hedonism, that's yeah. like the pleasure seeking yeah. aspect of life. So this concept of the hedonic treadmill was for me just completely groundbreaking breaking because the biggest thesis, the biggest takeaway from this experiment, and, and they've done a sundry of experiments with this since um, it first came out. And the main concept of this is was derived on an experiment that they had. And they had two controlled groups. They had one controlled group that had won the lottery. And then the other control group experienced the most abject situation. They suffered a severe traumatic um, spinal cord injury, something that mm. would severely negatively impact mm. their their quality. So they got actual lottery winners. They didn't just tell them they won the lottery. They yeah. No, this is like. And actual spinal cord victims. Yes. Okay. And they studied their baseline of happiness over the span of five years. And the biggest takeaway was that after five years, regardless of your circumstance, whether it is a positive or it's a negative circumstance, whatever the vicissitudes are, you essentially return to the same base level of happiness. And, you know, why is this relevant? Because in this day and age, and it's it's pervasive. It's getting worse. We are commercialized with happiness that we need to attain it. We need to seek it. And we're constantly living our lives with our jobs where it's like, if I can make such and such amount of money, if I could do X, then I will be happy. Then one, if I do this, if I achieve this, if this happens, I'm going to receive a golden card in the mail from fucking Willy Wonker. And I'm going to open it up and it's going to say, congratulations, you are happy. And it doesn't happen like that. Mm. Doesn't. And so if you want to, you know, kind of dive into the, um, the intricacies of it, obviously there's anomalies, um, you know, genetics come into it. Um, you know, there's some circumstances where if you're in jail, it might take a little bit longer for you to rise back up to that stable level of happiness. Um, they've also seen that if you've been divorced, it might take a little bit longer, but essentially, you can experience the two completely contrast aspects of life. And over the period of time, you will both return to the same level of happiness. So if you had a guy whose income was $100 million a year mm -hmm. and you make, you have another guy whose income is 100,000, mm -hmm. you could look at that guy and know that there's a good chance you're both running on a similar, if not the same baseline level of happiness, which is if, when you wake up and you go throughout the day, if you asked the billionaire, if you asked the guy making a hundred million a year to click a button 10 times throughout the day and say on a scale of one to 10, how happy are you feeling right now? And you gave the same button to a guy making a hundred K a year, as opposed to a hundred million there's a good chance it could be pretty similar. Could be v pretty similar, but I, I mean that's a little more nuanced. Whereas you have these two s complete abject scenarios where, like, spinal cord injuries mm -hmm. and winning the lottery, like 
you could see the bigger difference between mm-hmm. those two and there's not a difference is what I'm saying. Yeah. So like if you win the lottery, what happens is you have higher expectations. You want a bigger house. You want to spend more money. And um, after the span of five years, you know, in the beginning, s- sure, your surge in happiness, love it, need this. Then you're buying jet skis, then you're buying a house. And then it's like, oh, well, I only have a shore house. I need a ski house. I need this. You know what I mean? So you are constantly adapting to that level. And I feel like that is something that people really need to kind of like, like swallow at this point that there isn't one thing that you can do or achieve that is going to be like, done it, fucking happy. Mm. Here I am, you know? Yeah. And, and I feel like that's something that nobody is really aware of right now. Yo, if you if you win the lottery, let's say let's say a hundred million dollars, you win the lottery as opposed to the the spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. You win the lottery, you get this initial surge of happiness yep. that lasts for however many months or years, and then you keep trying to purchase more things to Mm. fill that void and keep you at a similar level of happiness where the person who gets a spinal cord injury, they will be in a level of unhappiness for months or years. And then they are almost doing the opposite. They're they're becoming grateful for the things they already have to bring them up to that level of happiness. So it's like you have one person who surged up Mm -hmm. and then they're trying to get more and more and more and more and that is bringing them back down. And then you have someone who surged down and they're like, oh, I I have less, I'm fine. I have less, I'm fine. And by recognizing that they have less and still are happy, that's making them even happier. Maybe they encounter someone who had a spinal cord injury and also got brain damage or doesn't have legs. And they're like, oh, well, at least I'm not, you know, that guy or girl, I still have my mental capacities. And and so they're, and it makes you more grateful for the shit that you do have. Yeah. You know, and, but that to me is just like, it's mind boggling, you know? Cause for me, I work my ass off. Like I'm a writer part-time, like I get residual income. It's great. But I work my ass off as, as a freelance copier, copywriter, and as a senior copywriter for a a fortune 500 retailer, you know? And I find myself where I'm like, if you know what, if I can make this amount of money, if I could do this, if I could do that, like I'll eventually be happy. But the grand scheme of things, that stuff is only temporary. Mm -hmm. It's that short little jolt. And then you're going to return back to that baseline. So with that information, what are the things you do throughout the day or throughout the week? Is there something that you remind yourself of? Is is it an activity you do? Things that help you remove yourself from the hedonic treadmill and place you back onto the basic level of awareness and you know, gratefulness in some sense for what you already have. How do you take yourself off that, you know, uh, that loop, the hedonic loop and then put yourself. It's, it's not easy, you know? Um, and, and it, and it becomes more of a habit than anything, but I think it starts with, with the gratitude and, and acknowledging how things are, um, you know, acknowledging things that are, that you normally take for granted, um, for me personally, every day I wake up and my parents are healthy, happy. Um, that's a win for me, you know. Um, 
you know, like I'm working on this novel and that's like the end game. Like I'm, I'm, I might, I'm probably done with short. I have one more short story that I'm pitching right now. But after that, like my main goal is this novel that I want to get at. Mm. And it's not a collection of short stories. It's an actual novel. Um, it's a complete novel with an array of characters. Um, but I think it's important for us to every day to, and it sounds so cliche, so fucking live, laugh, love bullshit. But I think every single day you've got to realize how fortunate you are for the situation you're in. It might not be the best. Um, You know, I'm 34 at this point. Um, I feel like most people will approach a midlife crisis where they've lived a couple of different lives, where they have a couple of different episodes and they're on season five of their lives and they're maybe nostalgic for season two because, you know, they've had a different cast of people in their lives in certain times. And, but at the end of the day, to see where you're at, like you are an amalgamation of the people you've met, the encounters that you've had, the experiences that you've had, and to just be able to wake up and to realize how grateful you are is as, as, blase as it sounds like it's the most important part yeah so if if we go with the seasons the seasons metaphor when you have a show that goes most shows don't stay well written they're not good past the first couple maybe two or three seasons because they're fucking writers are lazy so if you feel like you're in season five or six of your life and you feel like you're stretching the same material out just for the sake of getting to another season. Mm-hmm. What is the, I don't want to say solution, yeah. but what's, what's the kick in the ass yes. to, yes. to bring you back to feeling like you're in season one again? Do you just yeah. say, fuck it, I'm going to do something new. Do you look at what you're doing in a new light? So you don't, so you don't mm-hmm. completely switch careers, but you change perspectives. So it's like, yeah, you're living a different show now, but you didn't have to give up your prior experience. It's, like what's it's the answer introspection. to that? Okay. And, and I only maybe mentioned this once or twice, but, and again, like I've had a psychologist reach out to me on Instagram saying like, you know, you shouldn't be giving clinical or clinician advice and stuff like that. And I'm like, I'm not doing that. Like, I'm just talking well, about- He reached me. out after the, the podcast after the last or something? Podcast. Yeah, yeah. He said, you shouldn't be giving clinical advice. I'm like, listen, dude, I said I was not the expositor of yeah. mental health. Right? I'm like, I'm just speaking for myself. I, I thought yeah. I made that very clear. Yeah. And right. also that's my thing. I, I have the fake prescription pad. Yes. I'm giving people clinical advice on the side on Instagram. You just snorted three lines of Xanax yes. for this interview. Yes, I mix mine with Adderall, but yes, that is 100% true. That That's my thing. But yeah, yeah, I mean, we said a million times on the first podcast. I thought this, I was very clear. Yeah, we're that. not doctors. I, I mean, I was wearing a doctor's uniform. Yes. I, I did have my stethoscope yes. and so that might've thrown people off, but- exactly. Yeah, yeah, fuck that guy. No, so yeah, I, but what I'm saying is, is that, and, you know, I, I, I try to, you know, it, it all goes back to philosophy. If you ever read Frederick Nietzsche, Soren Kierkegaard, um, their their works are two two hundred plus years old, and they are still timeless. And it all comes back to introspection. Um, we have a tendency to seek 
outside of ourselves. We have a, send, a tendency to reach certain things, to accomplish certain things, and that'll make us feel fulfilled. But in the reality, we don't really understand ourselves. We don't understand we don't understand our proclivities to for certain things that we do. We don't understand our pensions for things that we like. Um, and to get to that state where you're completely content with yourself, you have got to do an introspective look. You've got to see the habits that you've learned over the years, where they stem from, how you react when you're upset, you're, you experience a disappointment. Um, mm -hmm. Are you in control of your emotions? Or if you get cut off in traffic, are you going to fucking lose your mind and, and try to fight somebody at a red light? You know? Yeah. Like there are so much, so much introspection that I feel as a society, we are too afraid to venture into. Yeah. And we're constantly looking outward. We're like, let me go visit the, this fucking place out here that has a beautiful sunset. Maybe I'll find myself. Yeah. And like, you can travel wherever the fuck you want, but until you start traveling inward, you're never going to really have a sense of solace. Well, we have the stories of what a successful career or a relationship is supposed to look like mm -hmm. that's given to us by movies or media or by quote unquote experts. And we compare our lives that we know better than anyone else. We can reflect our lives to, in different ways to people who are watching us on social media. And, but we know the life we're living. And so we see the other depictions, then we compare ourselves mm -hmm. to that small slice that is the depiction of other people's lives. And we say, okay, something, there must be something more because everyone else is living like this or everyone else has this thing that I'm constantly chasing, but it's like we're all shooting off these small slices of this portrayed and many times faux happiness into the ethosphere. And then people compare that to their own actual life. And, and I feel like I almost had a rebirth of podcast meaning during the mm -hmm. pandemic, like almost a professional rebirth because my goal from the the start of podcasting when I started doing it consistently, it was about three years ago, was I, I want to get to the point where I can pay rent on a studio. I can hire a producer. I can just be hands off on everything. I walk in, I record the podcast, I walk out, I hand it to someone. I say, you know, go deal with this, edit, chop it up, go post it. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I'm lucky enough now that I, I have people yeah. like Manoa who edited the last podcast at Manoa Rain. And then I work with another guy online who does some of the the audio for episodes that I don't have time to do myself. So, so I do have people that I work with, but it's not like that balling out Joe Rogan style studio where you walk in, you have your producer, he's there with you. You're paying him a salary. You're, you're renting out the studio space. Yeah. And I, I was really thinking to myself, which was easy because I was alone for a lot of the, the pandemic. Like, why do I want to rent a studio when I basically make a studio in my apartment every time I have a guest over? Mm -hmm. Why do I need a producer? 
when I can just do, do a few hours of work and teach myself how to record it. Yeah. And then I can send other people the files if I need to, who can edit and process the episode and send it back to me. Like, why does it have to be this glorification of the podcasts that I see on YouTube, which are great. And, and a lot of those guys have worked years and years, started podcasting 10, 15 years before me. And so I'm just seeing, I, I, I click a video and I see, oh, this dude has a fucking ball in studio Miami <laughs> or LA. They have, they have two producers. They have all these sick cameras. I'm looking at the behind the scenes stuff and I'm like, huh, like I need to get to this level. And I yeah. thought, I'm like, I can do everything I want to do with a podcast mm. right now. It might get more sparkly in the future as I get more and more subscribers. Mm. Shout out augzoro.supercast.com. Uh, uh, shameless plug for bonus episodes. Um, but like I, I, I have everything I want to do right now with podcasting. Mm. I can do everything. I can have meaningful conversations. I can reach out to guests. I can record it myself when I need to. I can have other people help me out. And so this level, this extra level that I would think of when I was kind of on the the podcast hedonic treadmill, that, that own hedonic treadmill, uh, like the podcast version of it, that was just some story that I had in my head that I needed to attain. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, that didn't come from within. That came from shit I was seeing. seeing. And only when I was alone with my own thoughts, like the introspection, did I realize that I don't actually fucking want this. I just think I do because I'm seeing it all the time every yeah. time I go on YouTube. But really, I could just do this on audio and have a, a $100 recorder and that's the only expense I'm going to have. So you're, you would say you're a victim of the uh, of mimetic desire. Mimetic desire, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like um, I had Luke Burgess on the podcast a few months ago. Uh, who wrote the book Wanting, which goes into mimetic desire. Mm -hmm. And I, mimetic desire can be great in a lot of ways because we see what other people desire and we can analyze those desires and, and see if we want it for ourselves. Mm -hmm. But that the what I was experiencing was an example of mimetic desire that I was unaware of because it felt like coming from within, yeah. but it was an external source yeah. of desire. And when I really thought about it and the conversation uh, with Luke and reading his book might've had something to do with it because it was around that same time during the pandemic where I'm like, what the, like, why the fuck do I even want this? Well, it's funny because like, so just, this is the writer in me, but the etymology with mimetic desire goes back to Aristotle and Plato. And, um, you know, it, it's a Greek word um, for mimesis mm. and, um, Plato and Aristotle kind of had a conflict between their beliefs on it and whether it was worthwhile where Aristotle thought that mimesis is pretty much the most ingrained sort of um, behavior of, of us as a society. Like we learn by imitating. Um, the word mimesis is a Greek word for imitate, where Plato was like, oh, fuck these posers, you know, all these these poets, they are literally just copying each other, mm -hmm. you know, and when, when they were talking about like the Greek tragedies. But to to see the evolution of the term mimesis to make it into mimetic theory um, and then mimetic desire, um, you know, and, and so um, Rene Girard, which is mm -hmm. actually more of a contemporary concept yeah. in the early 2000s thought to explore the psychological phenomenon on, on how 
um, conflict arises between people and that, um, you know, people, it's not that people want too many things. They want, all want the same thing. Um, and one of the, the, the best metaphors for this is when children are, are put in a room and they have a, you know, a selection of toys and whatever toy the first kid picks up, every other kid is going to want to go and play with it. Yeah. Um, and it's just that they're imitating each other, you know, and it's the basis of everything nowadays, yeah. especially with social media. It's the reason why fucking people want holes, uh, jeans with holes in them or just jeans in general. Cause they see people wearing it. It's the reason why influencers are so, um, you know, in demand nowadays, because it's like, Oh, I see what they're doing. I want to be like that. Mm. You know, like, we are a, such a mimetic society, yeah. whereas we're always, we're like, our desires are not really autonomous. It, we are highly influenced by what we see yeah. and what other people have. Not at all. Yeah. It's like you have people like Kim Kardashian who can wear jeans on her head and mm -hmm. that will become a trend because people want what Kim Kardashian wants before the actual thing that she wants. Yeah. They desire her desire, whatever that may be. Yeah. And I feel like that's where a lot of trends come from in fashion. It's where, where, where people, there are these iconic people in society that have, mm -hmm. that, that are at the top yeah. and then their desire, they broadcast their desires through social media and mm -hmm. then other people see that and they we've learned to desire what the people at the top want to desire. And then also there's, there's a uh, positive forms of mimetic desire too, where I, I listen to a conversation like with Ari Shafir and Tim Ferriss and, and hear someone talk about uh, you know, like meditation or riffing and stand-up comedy or whatever it is and try to apply and learn about those things because I think, okay, this person is someone I admire and this has made a change in them. And so I des I want to desire some of the things they desire because they are a person that's doing things that I mm -hmm. want to do, that that I feel are like the 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 basic desires in yeah. me, which maybe those even aren't those may not even be basic desires, like the desire to podcast. Maybe that was something uh like there's a lot of mimesis in podcasting where Absolutely. people started having conversations for three hours, like Joe Rogan, Mark Marin, uh, Howard Stern, where before that, no one wanted to, no one thought that people would want to listen to a three hour conversation. Exactly. Yeah. And now that those conversations are out there and people want it, now other people want to do that, myself included, because one of the reasons is because it is a known desire of other people. I, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think anyone else wanted this. I, I'd, it would be, uh, it would be crazy to to do this without an audience. Yeah. I, I and, and at the same time, it's it's also fulfilling. So I do think there's an internal factor to mm -hmm. it. Also, it, you can't just run on the desires of other people. Eventually, there has to be a part of that desire that also feels like it fulfills you as well. So, so I go back and forth about yeah. that a lot. Oh, absolutely. And I think it's all too common to conflate desire with needs. Um, if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the, the, the top tier is the self-enlightenment and is this 
sense mm. of understanding yourself and there's multiple layers to it. Um, but when it comes to mimesis, like we are such a mimetic society. I, I mean, whether it's advertising or it's Instagram or it's all that shit, you know, and it makes you kind of pose that question is as if we didn't have anything like say, like hypothetically, say we, we don't have our phones and we're put in the middle of a fucking, um, a, a, mm-hmm. a deserted island, right? How do you form your identity, you know, without stuff that we identify with around us? Is this, you know, is this as we are now? No. Or is this just from the beginning? From the beginning. A, like we are um, so consumed with identifying with stuff that we want as a part of our ego and like things that we, we, identify with that, that gives us value. But it's like, if we don't have the, this external stimuli constantly, how do you define yourself from the most intrinsic level? Well, for (laughs) that, we, you know, people have already done this, but we, we could look at indigenous societies that Mm -hmm. basically have no contact with the outside world Mm -hmm. and see what they want and desire and look at their levels of happiness. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure a lot of those people are very happy. Yeah. And, and, you know, I I don't know. I've I've never come in in contact. What is is the basic level? Yeah. What's the basic level? Yeah. Shelter, warmth, a companion. Because you don't know what else is out there. You don't know that you can become Mm -hmm. a TikTok star when you're living in the Amazon and your only concern is I have to walk this many miles to get water and I have to prepare food and then I help, you know, build whatever shelter we have or tents or or dancing activities. Your, your concerns are very limited to a certain number of things and your mind can't even conceive of the other options out there. Yeah. And that might even be a way to improve your own fulfillment is to limit your options. Kind of like what we were talking about in Bleed, where the the impending doom of death limits your options mm-hmm. to what you have right in this moment. And you have this sense of peace because nothing else is a possibility yeah. in that moment. You can't do any of those other things until you take care of the blood that's pouring out of you because it's yeah. so threatening and so immediate that it forces you into that present moment. It could be that we have to limit our put put some sort of cap on what we desire, put some sort of limit on our expectations mm-hmm. that have been force fed to us and go intrinsic go, go introspectively yeah. however we can to realign those yeah. expectations. But it requires action, mm-hmm. you know? Like you have to be active. You can't mm-hmm. just be like, oh yeah, I'll do that. But it, it's like an everyday occurrence. Like yeah. you have got to choose to do these things. You mm-hmm. know? So, so one of the things I wanted to get into mm-hmm. is kratom. Yes, kratom. Yeah, yeah. Do we have time to take bathroom? Break? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. All right. You got all the time in the world. I got, I got a lot to talk about with kratom. Oh yeah, hundred percent. The pronunciation. Yes. <laughs> kratom. We're going to snort some lines. It's only fitting. I could snort another one today. 
Can we talk about Kratom? Yes. Yeah. Let's let's okay. talk about Kratom. 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 Listen. Let's listen. get into Kratom. I'm a writer, so let's take a stance right now. On the Xoro podcast, we are going to get down to the semantics, the phonetics of Kratom. How do we pronounce it? I've seen Kratom, Kratom, Kratom. My vote is for me as a grammar savant. I would say it's Kratom. Or not not Kratom, Kratom. So you see, so I I want it to be Kratom because mm-hmm. that, that sounds the the yeah. best to me. It has the it's disarming the aesthetic ring okay. to it. Kratom, Kratom. Kratom sounds like Target. It does. It's like right? you're in Target, bro. You're not in Target. It sounds like a, a, cont- a contour yeah. that you put on your face. And also Kratom cast. If, if we ever yeah. start a podcast where we take massive amounts of Kratom and then just go on tangents, I'll, we'll call it Kratom cast. Right. So a, a Kratom cast just doesn't sound right. Yeah. Okay. All right. What about you? What, what do you feel? I mean, from a writer, I feel like there's a, there's a lot of pressure on me. I mean, you got two syllables. The the second syllable is definitely Tom, you know, Adam. So I I, I have a problem with pronouncing the first syllable as Cray because it's K R A. Um, I mean, honestly, you like Kratom? I, I think so. I mean, yeah. as a writer, as the writer in me, I would say Kratom. Yeah, Kratom. Yeah. So what if it's Kratom, like there's a yeah. upside down triangle on the the O. Yeah, so I mean, like I'm, that I'm all for it, man. Kratom. I mean, anything that gets the people going, you know, I'm all for it. I just don't see the Y in there. Yeah, you know, if there was a Y in there, then maybe I, I'd go for it. But yeah, I'm I'm yeah. I'm open to being corrected or, and punished. Or so. we could call it the plant form, the the Mitragyna. Mitragyna speciosa. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah. And that's fun to say because it sounds like you're going to say like vagina, but it's it's close. It's Mitra, really... Mitragyna vagina. Yeah. Mitragyna vagina. You could probably yeah. lick some kratom off a vagina. That would be a nice sexual. I feel sexual... like that would be the best of both worlds. Yeah. Because you, know? you want the, the moisture <laughs> mixed with the kratom. You wouldn't have to mix it with anything except maybe if you want to put on a little drop of honey, like some sort of vanilla lubricant, honey, vanilla yeah. lubricant, and so, then the so kratom, the pussy juice, and the... The lubricant would mix together into this this peaceful euphoria, and Very you, and you wouldn't saporous taste. Yeah, yes, yes, ex- I agree. exactly. Okay, and you wouldn't have to slit your own fingers to make yourself bleed out to reach that level of peace. Right. You could just lick kratom off a pussy and get the yeah. same feeling. Okay, I'm I'm all for. I'm it. gonna start an app. You should <laughs> pussy sure. kratom hashtag. Yeah, hashtag <laughs> pussy, kratom pussy kratom pussy. So so speaking of kratom kratom yeah. Yeah. kratom, however you pronounce it, uh-huh. pronounce it. Uh, what what drew you to kratom? Because mm-hmm. you you informed me of what it kratom did. was, and and I actually. Took some before this podcast. Did. Some super speciosa, so you're which I'm, I'm so gonna, fucked up. Right, I'm now. gonna. I'm, I, I'm not gonna remember <laughs> this at all. I'm gonna be uh, when I edit this, this episode. Dream, when I man. edit this episode, I'm gonna be listening to it for the first time because <laughs> I, I don't remember anything. Um, yeah. So, but what, what got you into it? Oh man, it's a great story. So, um, um, he so just I, drank three tablespoons of kratom right there. No, no, I, I wish <laughs> I had. I had, some, vodka, I yeah. had some kratom earlier this morning. Yeah. Um, so my first experience with Kratom was I had a coworker who was this real goodwill hunting type of dude, like super intellectual. Matt Damon. Yeah. Very handsome. 
very tall. Um, like so more Ben Affleck than if he was tall, more Ben Affleck than anything. He had dark features, but he was super like intellectual, but he had, he was playing soccer in college and he tore his ACL, his MCL, terrible injuries. And he, like so many others, got addicted to Oxycontin, um, you know, the, and I'm not trying to shit on Western medicine, but the the analgesic sort of push with Western medicine is such a fucking crock of shit right now. And he got addicted to Oxycontin and he was a D1 athlete, um, never touched that shit in his life. And he started experimenting with Kratom or Kratom um, to come off of, of what he was dealing with. He, you know, he had a year of Oxycontin and they literally were just like, oh yeah, you know, you don't need to come off of it. You just can stop cold Turkey. And that's such bullshit. The Oxycontin, they said stop cold Turkey. Yeah. They're like, oh yeah, we'll we'll decrease your (laughs) dosage and then you'll be fine, which is such bullshit. If anybody's watched dope sick on Hulu, Mm. like you can see the, the influence that, Purdue Pharma had on the FDA is just, it's, it's jarring. Mm. I, I, I was watching and I'm Googling. It's like, there's no way. hundred percent, hundred percent accurate. <coughs> um, and he's kind of like a tortured person. You know, he was a writer mm. and, um, you know, he was dealing with a lot of pain. So he turned me on to Kratom and I tried it first. I did a small dosage and. How much was it at first? <sighs> maybe three maybe three tablespoons. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Three maybe, teaspoons. Yeah. Yeah. It was like a sm- very small dosage. So about like three grams. Yeah. About three, grams, about like three okay. grams. And like you felt loopy, you felt like a little concentrated. It felt good, you know? Um, so I took that for a little bit and, uh, you know, I still compete in strongman in my free time. Like I'll still be deadlifting and pressing and I still have competitive lifts. Like I can deadlift 600, I can squat, you know, almost 500. And I noticed that I was getting like these lingering aches from, and it's not from strongman. It was from sitting at a desk, hunching over a keyboard Mm. and just typing all day. And so I started experimenting a little more with Kratom and, um, you know, so anybody that doesn't really understand what Kratom is, is it's, um, it is a, a um, Mitragyna plant and it's pretty much a leaf and we've, you know, uh, it's indigenous to Asia and they've been using it for thousands of years. Even some cultures, um, literally set up their homes, their shelters to be around these Kratom leaves because they had such a wealth of purposes. And, you know, obviously when you come across a botanical, a leaf that has shown to um, combat combat pain and pain management, you're going to get big pharma upset about it. So they tried to ban it in 2018. Um, I think it's pretty much banned in Malaysia. Um, I, I think I Thailand. believe I think it was just lifted in Thailand. I, I saw something about it. It was being lifted in Thailand. in Thailand. I know Indonesia is the. I'll the have one to double check that after yeah. the podcast. But I believe yeah. I saw something that where it was being lifted in Thailand. So it's an alkaloid. It's an alkaloid, which is exactly like caffeine. It's exactly like um, 
um, on tobacco or, or um, nicotine. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that gets the FDA, you know, all riled up is because it has some um, opioid agonist sort of properties where it can affect your opioid receptors. And what that does is it actually kind of assuages any sort of pain that you have. But from the research that they've done, they've shown that there's no really addictive properties. Um, it can be addictive in terms of habitual use, whereas like I'm in pain and I don't want to be in pain anymore, so I want to use this. But the um, big pharma, um, you know, Western medicine, which is great, but anytime that there's ana- any sort of analgesic sort of benefits, big pharma is going to jump in and say, oh, no, 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 we need to... to, to to ban that stuff. You know, we need to, um, turn it into a pill form and change a molecule and, and patent it and stuff like that. Yeah. So like, like fi- what they're trying to do with ivermectin, basically. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So like, you know, big pharma honestly is the biggest piece of shit. Like I'm not even afraid to say it right now. I mean, the way they handle pa- pain management, it's a fucking scam. It is a complete scam. They're conditioned to, to, to treat, not to cure. And this kratom leaf that has been around for thousands of leaves or thousands of years has shown exponential benefits in terms of pain management. Yeah. Um, and as of right now, it's not regulated. You can get it in, in the U S I can get it at any smoke shop. You take it in small dosages. Yeah, you can take it pill form, powder mm-hmm. form. I just, I took it in mixed with water, yep. do a tea, put some honey in it. Yeah. And, and small dosage, Small dosages, it's a stimulant and long and large dosages, it's more of a sedative. Um, but it has so many beneficial factors to it. And they've tried desperately to to kind of pinpoint it to causing deaths and this and that. But then you, you do the research and you find that the deaths that are associated with it are in conjunction with other drugs and heroin and stuff like that, yeah. you will never find a death specifically caused from no. Kratom. Yeah. yeah. So I I had a, a little bit of a different path into, into Kratom. So you told me about the drug and we exchanged, I, I, I think you sent me a few articles and then I watched the documentary that Mark Bell made mm-hmm. about Kratom, the same guy who made uh, Bigger, Faster, Stronger. And I wasn't dealing with any nagging nerve pain when I started taking Kratom about, I want to say it's probably about a year ago now. I, I had a couple nerve surgeries when I was in college on my elbow from baseball, but that pain is 95% of the time not there unless I'm doing some sort of activity where my elbow has to flex back into external rotation, which most of the time when I'm lifting or, you know, doing mace or Muay Thai or whatever, I'm not in that position. I have to be throwing something to externally flex my elbow. So I, I don't, I wasn't looking for a pain solution. Mm-hmm. What I was interested in is experimenting with things that would open me up for podcasting and give me a little bit of a kick, but also ease a little bit of the anxiety that goes into podcasting. And, yeah. and I know nothing will ever completely get rid of that, but I was I was drinking coffee before podcasts in the morning and early afternoon. 
And then for pod, a lot of podcasts, depending on what time zone the person is, I will record at night. So I, I might start some podcasts at six, seven, eight o'clock at night, where for me, I didn't want to drink coffee because that was going to keep me up. All night, yeah. And so I wanted something for a little, you know, a little kick that I would be able to fall asleep on. And so I came across Kratom and uh, you, you sent me information on it, ended up watching the documentary, buying some products from Urban Ice, which is, which is in the, the documentary. And also I, I have the powder from Super Speciosa. And so I started taking uh, one pill in the morning, okay. which is a full serving is two pills. So 75 milligrams of caffeine and 600 milligrams of Kratom. Yeah. Um, and so one pill would be half that. So about 35, 40 milligrams of caffeine yeah. and 300 milligrams of Kratom, Okay, which is an imperceptible dose, but I'd never taken it before. So I did feel something. Yeah. And then did you feel like loquacious, like you were? I felt I felt just more, almost like a less anxious Adderall like effect. Yeah, like Adderall gets you fucking like edgy as shit. And I I, and sometimes on Adderall in college, I would get too jacked up. So I'm like, I gotta go outside and pack a dip or smoke a cigarette (laughs) because I need to. It was like a less nervy Adderall like sensation, and I was taking a low dose. And so now, uh, during the week, I will take two of those pills, which is in the morning, I will take 600 milligrams of Kratom okay. and 75 milligrams of caffeine. It's yeah. combined in the pill. And then in the afternoon, if I feel like I, I want to take it, I will do a half teaspoon of the Kratom powder from Super Speciosa, which is two, uh, sorry, uh, 1.2 grams of Kratom. Okay. okay. Full teaspoon is 2.4. Yeah. Uh, half teaspoon is 1.2. And so that is what I take. And, and I was going off how I felt and I didn't, I, I, I didn't want to build any sort of, uh, addiction or reliance on it. So I was keeping my dose low on purpose. And I actually started out higher with taking a full teaspoon in the afternoons yeah. and actually cut that in half. Yeah. And a lot of times I forget about it or I just purposely don't take it because I, I, I feel like I don't need it. And I started taking it with podcasts before adding it in with the coffee. If it was an earlier podcast in the day, or I would take it at night. And I felt like this open, like slightly more open feeling. Right. And I would still get anxious at the beginning, but it was toned yeah. down a little bit. Yeah. Like I felt like I was more emotionally open and I took yes. it before this podcast and I, and I feel, you know, like it kind of opens the door mm-hmm. to feeling things it, a little bit more. It, it kind of quiets that inner critic. Like yeah. It gives you that freedom where you're a little more lucid where like, so for me as a writer, like I have a thousand thoughts going at all times yeah. and like I extract the thought and then I kind of hone it and craft it into like a, a logical sentence. But I find that when I take the Kratom that they're a little more, more developed, you know, yeah. like, and you don't feel that resistance yeah. to, to say things like you're a little more comfortable. Yeah. The, for me, I, I rarely take a dose higher than five grams. I may take a five gram dose before a podcast, but I don't think I've ever taken a dose. Like I, I scrape off the teaspoon on the bag. Like I'm not taking heaping two teaspoons. I might, I might take one heaping teaspoon. So like a three or four gram dose, but I, I, yeah. I don't think I've ever taken more than five grams. Okay. Um, 
in a 24 hour period. And so I was taking those doses and I, from the documentary, I knew that there was also this other side of Kratom, this cancel culture side of Kratom, which people getting addicted and and big pharma saying, you know, this is, this drug is like taking heroin that people, I did a YouTube video where I said, this is my experience with Kratom. And I had a few people comment like, yeah, you feel good because you're basically microdosing heroin. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, Oh I mean, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think heroin addicts forget about heroin. Like I've literally gone days, weeks without it. I'm just like, I don't even realize. But but not for nothing though, Kratom they 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 affect your opioid receptors. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. They don't contain any actual addictive properties yeah. besides the fact that like you feel pain and you don't want to feel pain. Yeah. Like if you ever watch Dope Sick on Hulu, mm-hmm. that whole fucking ordeal with Oxycontin like is wild. Like I watched that whole series and I'm Googling this shit. I'm like, did this really happen? And- they literally manipulated the FDA. They paid them off. They paid all these pain associations to be, you know, spokespersons for this drug. And you're talking 30 years later, they finally paid out the biggest payout in history. And Richard Sackler is still a billionaire with no fucking accountability. So, yeah. you know, like, I'm not shitting on Western medicine, but if you examine the fucking pain management, the palliative sort of industry. It's a the biggest fucking scam. Yeah. I'm probably going to get a lot of shit for saying this. So I actually, I went through the subreddits, Kratom and also quitting Kratom. Okay. And there's a lot, of, I was interested in what people said about quitting Kratom. And there's yeah. a lot of people in there that say that Kratom absolutely destroyed their lives. Like, like heroin, like if you didn't, know what the drug was called, you would think you were waiting, you were reading a quitting heroin subreddit. And I'm, I'm reading this and and I'm not saying people don't get addicted to Kratom. I'm I'm sure that's happened. People report taking doses in the quitting Kratom group on Reddit of 20, 30, 50. I think one guy even said he was taking a hundred grams in a day, which I don't know (laughs) how that's fucking possible. Um, but I also was reading through the comments and there were a lot of comments that seemed robotic, like a a lot of the same comments by different accounts and the conspiratorial side of my brain was thinking, are these fake profiles created by, you know, either big pharma or someone with an interest in seeing Kratom fall into piling on the quitting Kratom subreddit, which is probably the biggest group of people online that are against Kratom. Like if you, if, and, uh, uh, fuck the, the documentary that I sent you, the, the other one, not the bigger, faster, stronger, uh, Hamilton Morris, the uh, cornucopia, uh, not cornucopia, um, pharma something. Was that on Kratom? Kratom, yeah. Okay, I yeah. think I think his name is Hamilton yeah. Morris. I, I forget, but yeah. he mentions the quitting Kratom subreddit okay. in a couple interviews he does on YouTube. And it's like yeah. this, it, it, Kratom's a very divisive drug. And I know that I'm, I'm talking purely from personal experience and some research on the drug, but it, th- there's a feeling in me that a lot of the anti-Kratom 
sphere on social media is contrived by some other force because I can't imagine becoming addicted to this substance. No. Like I've taken weeks break. Mm-hmm. I, I started taking a year ago. I've taken a month break from it. I would describe at the doses that I was taking, which is less than five grams a day, mm-hmm. most days like one to two grams, I would describe not taking Kratom as easier than going a day without coffee. Yeah. To me, I feel more of an emotional disturbance getting off of caffeine yeah. than I do not drinking Kratom for a day. And then the next day, I don't even realize that I'm not on well, it. Well, so for me, for, for, for Kratom, when I take it, it's when I, so I, I've been dealing, like I still partake in strong man sort of aspects. And that's something that's just like ingrained in me. Like I, I do a lot of cerebral writing and I need to combat that with like more visceral barbaric sort of fucking strength movements to just keep myself balanced. Cause I'm, I'm always in my head and I need to do something physical to combat that, to balance it. Um, but when I take the Kratom, I use it as a substitute for coffee because if I drink coffee, it's great. But then I'm pissing all day. It's a diuretic. Mm-hmm. Um, all I do is drink coffee and water all day. So I'll be peeing all day. When I take the Kratom, I feel I feel like a, like I have that high sort of sensation from marijuana, but I don't get that lethargy from it. Mm, yeah. You know, I can be sustained with it. I can focus. Um, and I'm OCD. I'm highly neurotic. Um, you know, I don't know if you know about, um, you know, Fisk's sort of five personality traits, but you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty highly neurotic. And so I, I will never let a substance kind of consume me. Um, I'll always use it in moderation, but I do find that the Kratom is a great source of keeping you level-headed to the point where you feel focused, but you don't feel like you need more. Um, And I feel like a lot of drug use is exacerbated by boredom. So there's this quote by Madame de Stel, and she was a French philosopher. She was a political writer from hundreds of years ago. And her most famous quote, and if you ever watch Sopranos, mm. um, they talk about this, and it's the idea that one, one must choose between boredom and suffering. And most of the time, people that do drugs, they're bored. They don't want to be bored, mm. you know? And I feel like a lot of us in society right now, we are engaging in social media constantly, scrolling and, and clicking and watching reels and stuff like that is because we can't deal with being fucking bored. There's nothing worse than being bored right now. But in the sense that we engage in this vacuous, insipid sort of entertainment, it feels good. It's ephemeral. But in the end, it is contributing to our suffering because mm. we're getting no real substance out of it. Yeah. You know? And like I personally, you know, I, I've only experienced the stimulant side of Kratom. I don't think I've ever taken enough to where I felt that kind of knotted, more opioid. Like I, I've taken 
prescription opioids after I had two elbow surgeries. And yeah. I definitely have that what noodle, they noodle like uh, I had hydrocodone, yeah. Oxycontin, yeah. maybe Vicodin. But I I definitely felt that nodding off kind of that shit just drowsy shit. Your opioid, yeah. opioid receptors. Yeah, and and I'm lucky because I didn't crave that. I actually I, I probably took it for a few days, and I was like, I'd rather just take the the extra strength Advil and go through this because I don't like feeling like a noodle. For me, I've always been more drawn to stimulants. Yeah, and that actually keeps me. Uh, like, like in a way, I, I don't feel the need to do more Kratom because I know doing more of it does leads to it having the opposite effect of, of the stimulant yeah. effect. And like a higher time. Yeah. So, so I'm like, all right, like this is the perfect drug for me because I don't want to take more. I want to feel awake and active when I'm taking it. Mm-hmm. And this happens to be a lower dose. But if you look at what happened in 2018, they were tr- the FDA was trying to ban it. Because yeah. anytime you can you come across a botanical herb that has analgesic sort of properties, big pharma is going to jump over that because they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can, you can prescribe this for multiple symptoms. Same thing with marijuana. It's like you can prescribe marijuana for, um, you know, appetite, um, pain relief, um, anti-inflammatory issues, Mm. like any sort of plant, that can be prescribed to heal or or abate all these sort of issues. Big pharma is going to cause a big rouse with that. Yeah. And you saw that they were trying to fucking get it banned. Yeah. And they had millions of people come out and protest. And these aren't people that are fucking crackheads. These are people that had serious injuries. Mm. And they're like, I don't want to do hard drugs. I don't want morphine. I don't want Oxycontin. I want something that I can take at a moderate dosage that's not going to make me addicted. And that's what Kratom is providing. It is helping people wean off of opioids. That's why I made one of the the video that I made on YouTube speaking about my experience, which over time has become one of the most the the most highly viewed videos that I've made on YouTube because I, I've seen how hard Big Pharma is going it's against bullshit. Kratom and, and how heavily people are speaking out that get a lot of benefits from it. And th- like, they're not these fucking crackheads. Like you said, they're, yeah. they're people who Normal take people, low to man. moderate doses. Most of them, yeah. um, maybe higher doses if they're managing, like instead of taking fucking, uh, Vicodin and, and hydrocodone every day, they're maybe taking higher doses of Kratom because they're dealing mm-hmm. with extreme amounts of pain. Yes, but a lot yes. of people are in that low to moderate dose category, yeah. like myself, like yourself. And it's not this, to me, again, my experience has been, it's not this sort of demonic doorway to heroin that big pharma no wants you to believe that it is. And and the World the World Health Organization, WHO, just decided not to call for a global Kratom ban. They were considering a global Kratom ban, yeah. like to recommend that everyone yeah. bans Kratom and they decided not to. And a lot of it is because people spoke out and said like, what the fuck are you doing? This drug is and, like less addictive than coffee and people are getting a lot of benefits from it. Yep. And, and what they want to do is... is all these pharmaceutical companies, they want to take Kratom. They want to change a molecule. molecule. They want to brand it as something different. And then they want to 
charge you four times the price mm-hmm. of it, you know? And it's crazy because you can see people are anti-pharma for some things. And then with other things, they're like, oh, no, 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 pharma's great. Pharma's great. Yeah. And, and I'm not shitting on Western medicine because Western medicine has had some great advancements. But if you are so blinded by what their motives is, and it's all about a business, man, like they are not conditioned. They are not, they are not trying to cure. They're trying to treat symptoms. And then once you understand that, you're just going to think pharma is like your fucking daddy. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. Instead of seeing Kratom as an opportunity, the ego of pharma says, how, how can we cancel out every other person benefiting from this and then make our own product that only we can benefit from? There's so many ways to advocate for Kratom and be creative with your own products. Mm -hmm. Just like you look at weed and CBD, how many companies have stepped in and said, all right, weed's here to stay. How can we create some sort of drink or Mm -hmm. food or some pill or extended release? Well, look at weed. It is anti-inflammatory. It'll help you suppress the appetite. It will help with anxiety, depression. It has like 15 symptoms it can cure. When it comes to pharma, they want to prescribe one drug for each symptom. Yeah. So when they see something like that, they're like, "Oh no, we don't. That we need to outlaw that yeah. because it'll. You you can't prescribe one drug for all of these symptoms. Yeah. They want one drug per symptom. You know, and people are like, they have their hearts in the right place, but you've got to understand how naive some people are. Yeah. It is all about making money. That's all they give shit about. Yeah, they they're, they don't give a fuck about you. They just want you as a business. It, and that's why psychedelics have been demonized so much because Absolutely. pharma's worst nightmare. If if there's a drug that can s- alleviate your depression to the point where yeah. you don't need to take medication, right? If, if pharma's worst nightmare is if you have something that you can take three times with therapeutic assistance and you can exactly. get rid of your fucking depression medication. That is the worst enemy. That's the worst enemy the of worst pharma. Thing you could they, <laughs> they need people to be hooked to the pills yeah. so they can continue to sell them. And then they need to sell you the pills for the side effects mm-hmm. of the pills that you're already prescribed. But they never want to cure you. They just want to treat you. Yeah. Because if they cure you, they can't make any money off it. Yeah. And that's what it is. And man. Kratom isn't a cure. Kratom no. is a way... To me, kratom. I I have no I, I've I've no kratom sponsors of the podcast or anything. You I should. I don't give a shit. I should I should. I'm gonna and you reach out. Kratom. Kratom. Yes, yeah. I should reach out to the companies <laughs> that I use. Kratom. To me, I'm telling you. And again, this is just my experience. I would have a harder time quitting kratom completely, or I'd have a harder time quitting coffee completely than I would quitting kratom. Yeah. I coffee has its hooks synced into me farther than kratom does, well, well, and, and I've gone months without kratom, but I have not gone months but without coffee. What's crazy is is that cough, coffee, caffeine, and kratom they are both alkaloids, so they both have they both have physiological effects. Yeah, they're very similar. You know, they they synergize with each other. I they so do. the the funny thing is. I drink less coffee because I'm taking Kratom. Kratom, I don't feel like I need to drink 
you know, three cups of coffee before noon, I have the pills that have the 75 milligrams of caffeine in a serving, which is a cup of coffee. And a lot of times that's all my caffeine intake for the entire day. So essentially you'd be purchasing less. Purchasing less. Exactly. And I also drink less when I'm on Kratom. We can't have that. Yeah. We can't have that. It's, we need you to be consume yeah. every hour of the day. There there are there are, there have been weeks where I don't take Kratom for the the entire week and I feel the need to but like I I, I have whiskey. I enjoy whiskey. Yep. I have the the globe back here that my my beautiful girlfriend I love bought it. me. Yes, shout out. And it, it's great. And the Christmas decoration. And the Christmas decoration. Yeah. That's from my mom. Oh, okay. I love Shout it. out to her. I shout out to Kathy. Influence. Yeah. So I've noticed that you have you have Christmas decorations on uh, up like perfect like it's very subtle. You can't see the cameras either. It's very I love it. and it's great. So, I'm feeling very festive. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. So the there there have been nights where instead of drinking the whiskey, I make a kratom tea, and I, I'm like I I don't even feel like touching any alcohol anymore. And yeah. I've no, nothing against alcohol. I'm, I'm I yeah. I love having a glass of whiskey. All for it. Um, you know, seltzer. I've been a seltzer slut, especially this past summer. You are a slut. Uh, I'm such a slutty <laughs> slut. I, yes. Uh, anyway, I'm trying to recruit more uh, yeah. Chris Cooper sluts to the cult yes. to, with with this podcast. <laughs> Any of my followers out yes. there, please. Yes. Yeah. So I, I wanted to get into Goodbye Benjamin. Yeah. As, as let we me, end let off. Me, let me take a break. Yes. 100%. Just to go, to go potty. Let's do it. Because I've had... I'll hold, okay. hold it for you. I'll hold it for you. Yo, yo. We're check, back. check. We're we are back. back. We are back. So mm-hmm. I'm going to take a sip of this LaCroix vodka. LaCroix. Very bougie. It's actually LaCroix. LaCroix. Um, so you, you sent me a story called Goodbye Benjamin mm-hmm. this week as where we uh to prepare for the the podcast went through it it's a it's a micro fiction hundred word story yeah S- set set the scene for what happened mm-hmm. can, can you still tell the yeah. the background that led up to the story so um I, as i kind of delineated on before like this past year my main focus has been on my novel um but there have been some circumstances that have kind of inspired me to kind of venture outside of that um, to take a break. And one of the microfiction stories I wrote was called Goodbye, Benjamin. And it was based on a jarring experience that I encountered this past summer with my neighbor. Um, he wound up committing suicide while I was home. Um, and it was one of those instances that was kind of really caught you in your place because I do a lot of writing with, you know, the human condition, depression, anxiety. And this man, um, he was in his late, uh, early seventies and I would encounter him every single day while I was working out. And he was very pleasant. He would ex- exchange pleasantries, you know, with me about lifting and like, you know, what's your workout today? just like the nicest guy I ever met. And um, this past August, I one Friday, I got a knock on my door 
and it was about 15 police officers and they were there to check on a, um, a suicide call. And I'm like, no, you've got the wrong place. And they're like, oh, well, we're looking for one, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, that's downstairs. So they, you know, stormed off, went downstairs. And about five minutes later, I went, I took my dog out and I came outside and there was just this onslaught of police presence. And I saw the wife there that I see every day. And she looked like a deer in the headlights and she had this indelible sort of expression on her face where she's just, her eyes are wide and it looks like the lights were on, but nobody was home. She was surrounded by police, police officers. And I approached her and I just said, Hey, like, are you okay? What's going on? And she's like, I don't know. My husband might've hurt himself. Um, and I'm like, is he okay? And she, you know, she's like, I don't know. And, um, I'm like, all right, well, you know, I'm here if you ever need me. Um, you know, I do have a soft spot in my heart for, for older people just because my parents are, are older and, um, I understand when you get to that certain point in your life, you know, um, you're not as, as autonomous and you do tend to rely on the people around you. And, and just to see somebody like that was just completely heartbreaking. And you come to find out that his, her husband um, wound up committing suicide that day. He had, um, he was about 72 years old. He was a professional pool player. He couldn't partake in his, you know, his hobby. He couldn't hold a pool stick anymore. He had uh, colon cancer. He had undergone about 50 sessions of chemotherapy. And you never would have known that uh, from talking to him. He was always lighthearted. Mm. He was always just this nice guy. And he would always pull up every day at five o'clock while I was working out and just saying like, what's the workout today? Like, what are you doing? You know? And, and we would always exchange pleasantries, but I never sensed that he was, you know, barely holding out. He was just had this, this convivial sort of attitude where you wanted to talk to him. You wanted to share. And, um, one day he just fucking blows his brains out next door to me. And I had written a, a microfiction short story about it. And, um, it, it's tough not to, to take that stuff to heart just because I knew him, you know, I saw him every day and, and I had, I would always talk to him, whether it was, you know, surface level stuff or, or, you know, he would disclose on, on his past. But, um, when it happened, I, I really took it to heart because, you know, I, I do deal with anxiety, depression, and I found a way to kind of channel that into productive avenues. But to see somebody that, that it's overwhelming and it eventually, you know, you succumb to it, it, it really kind of strikes a chord with me. So I wrote a short story about it, hundred words, just because I'm still working, I was still working on my novel and I submitted it to a publisher and, um, the publisher got back to me and said, this is beautifully written. We love it. But the ending is not realistic. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I wrote down the quote. They said, it's quote, just not believable. Yeah. And then what did you write back? And like, I read something like that and I'm like, you know what? 
you're a motherfucker. I'm like, this is verbatim what happened. Yeah. I'm like, it's not believable. So I just wrote back, listen. Um, and they were like, can you possibly change the ending or the reason why he committed suicide? And I just wrote back, listen, man, I really, sh- I wish I didn't have to even write this story. I wish I could change it all. But I'm like, this is what happened verbatim. So I'm not changing it. And if you don't want it, that's fine. I'll, I'll pitch it to other publishers. And their response was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like, we'll take it. They doubled the compensation for it. Um, but then they were like, oh, you know, we can't publish it till next year because our our magazine is just backed up. So I was like, you know what? That's that's your prerogative. But I'm still going to publish it. I'm still going to pitch it to other magazines. And then before I know it, they respond and they're like, oh, no, no, no. We'll take it. We'll swap somebody out and uh, it, we'll publish it in April. So, um, and, and that's sort of a microcosm for what I'm doing with my stories. Like I am bringing authenticity to these stories. Um, a lot of the stuff you read nowadays, they start out a certain way, but then they're wrapped up in a beautiful bow and they're delivered mm-hmm. to you and they make you feel really great and you can go off and make a fucking snow angel outside. And and, uh, I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to give you the firsthand account of the human experience. Um, And I'm not saying it has to be depressive at all times, but a lot of reality relies in your perspective and, and how you look at things. And this is one of those stories that is severely dark and it doesn't really have an uplifting end there, but um, it's a part of life and it happens. And, you know, these suicide ideations will find people that are, um, you know, susceptible to these sort of ideologies, but it's not something that you should frown upon. It's something that you should explore and to really kind of, you know, look into, um, a lot of people that have reached out to me over the year about anxiety and depression. They're like, well, you know, how do I make it stop? And, and how do I, what do I do? And it's like, no, you're, you're, you're not getting it. It's not about making it stop. It's about understanding where it's coming from. It's about, it's about understanding yourself. And, and Soren Kierkegaard who's a Danish philosopher from two, 300 years ago. Um, you know, he proclaimed that, um, depression and anxiety isn't an ailment. It's more of a spiritual journey. And I think if people can realize that this unsettledness in your chest, this thrownness into the world isn't an ailment, it's more of a call to um, seek inspiration, to kind of understand yourself and to look inward and not so much outward, not to seek a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a job or a vocation or, you know, a a salary, but to see what's internal. And a lot of people are afraid to look inside and see what's really lingering inside. And, um, that's something that I highly recommend you take your time to, to really explore um, and it's something that a lot of people are not prepared to do. Yeah. With the, the publication's recommendation to, to make it more believable, <laughs> there is a humorous aspect to it where you witness or not witness, but eventually you, you weren't actually there, but you learned that your neighbor literally shot himself yeah. in the face that, yeah. that, that was how he did it. Right. Yep. And then you write a story about that 
actual experience, the, the actual thing that happened and the magazine emails you back and they're like, uh, I mean, this, I'm, I like this story, but I just, you know, there's something about it. It just seems like a we little bit made like up. Can we, melodramatic. Can, we, can we jazz this up a little bit? You know, like, can we combine that, <laughs> yeah. but like the ending of Elf where he reunites yeah. with his family yeah. or something like, <laughs> you know, can, to me yeah. just, and, and you emailed them back and you're literally just like, I, my neighbor blew his head off. This is, yeah. a, this is a real story. Like, and they're this like, is oh, verbatim fuck. what happened. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, I'm sorry it's not believable for you, but this literally yeah. fucking happened. I'm I'm wondering like what is not believable about someone committing suicide that literally happens literally every day, hundreds, thousands of know. times, every single day. Someone chooses to end their own life, and their mag the magazine editors like ah, uh, I yeah. mean I don't I don't believe someone. Well, would actually I do, do that. think that we're in a generation now where suicide is kind of you know, and and mental health is kind of like a cool sort of topic. Like if you go on Instagram, you'll see people posting about ways to like combat your anxiety and depression. And, and it's, it's kind of saturated with, you know, virtue signaling and like, look at me, like I'm sad, but I'm dealing with it. But in all, in all honesty, and I'm not trying to shit on people, but the, the people that are really suffering from this stuff are not the people that are posting for mm. sympathy. They're the people that are laughing they're the people that are trying to create a facade of happiness. Yeah. And I, I think that we need to stop trying to, we, we got past the, you know, stigmatizing mental health, but I don't, I think we're getting to a point where it's just like, that's the cool thing now. It's becoming a badge of honor. Yeah. Like it's pe people, trendy. Yeah. It's like trendy to be the depressed, anxious yeah. artist and, and post about how depressed and anxious you are and getting through it. And at a certain point, I mean, I, I enjoy a lot of different types of music yeah. from a lot of different types of artists. And th there are some artists where I question, you know, are you depressed or are you using this Capital as a, an avenue to reach people through Spotify or SoundCloud or what yeah. are you are you basically yeah. like streaming your depression uh for numbers essentially because yeah. that, sometimes that's what it feels like I'm like people people that are really suffering from that and I'm, I'm and there are a lot of artists that do suffer from that and I, and I I know people well that suffer from that e even in my own family and and it's not this like when you, when you are suffering from depression, you're not thinking about how to leverage it into more downloads or streams or things like that. It's you, you, a lot of times it's the people who are the the happiest or the the calmest or the most peaceful, and and because they're they're projecting it in ways that aren't monetizable, or they're they're not trying to monetize it. Yeah, and they're these. Yeah, it really has become this sort of social status of, you know, are you trendy. even are you even an artist if you're not rapping you not or writing about your artist? depression? Yeah. yeah. No, I agree. 100 yeah. percent You know. Is um I so I, this is a question. This is a question that I have for you is did the experience of your neighbor killing himself and shooting himself did that make you hyper aware 
of your own ability to do that if you chose to. Because I, I have watched documentaries and I've yep. listened to people who have witnessed suicides um, either on podcasts um, or people I've had on the podcast who have experience with people in their own family committing suicide or, or yeah. close friends. And the knowledge of the, the knowledge and the experience of hearing about suicide makes me anxious because I think about all the ways in which if I wanted to, I could do that. And there are moments where I'm, I'm hyper aware of like, oh my God, like I, I could jump out my window or I have a lot of sharp, sharp objects in my apartment. Like what if I just fucking lose my mind for 30 seconds and decide to do something terrible? Yeah. Um, and I get 100%. caught in this loop, especially when I was quarantining by myself in the height of the pandemic. I, there were nights where I would go to bed yeah. and I would be lying in my bed thinking like, what if I yeah. I wake up at three o'clock in the morning and I just fucking like do something you, to you myself? You look at any yeah. brilliant creative minds, they've all, and, and like as shitty as this is to, to admit, they've all ended their lives on their own accord. Ernest Hemingway put a shotgun in his mouth, blew his fucking head off right? Hunter S. Thompson blew his fucking head off, right? Virginia Woolf put her head in a fucking oven. Stevie Smith fucking drowned herself. Virginia Woolf put her head in an oven? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, uh, To inhale monoxide poisoning. So it's like- But what is that though? Because there there are also creative geniuses that are still alive and kicking and then find out a way to combat that with something- The problem is is that if you are too inclined, if you're too familiar with the human condition and it goes back to Frederick Nietzsche, you know, and Frederick Nietzsche's most famous quote is what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Right. Mm. And fucking Kelly Clarkson has made a song out of it. Right. But I doubt Kelly. Exactly. (laughs) And, And Kelly Clarkson, not exactly a nihilist, you know, just like female empowerment. She could be though. I mean, she's an example of someone like, God forbid if Kelly Clarkson ended her life, like that would be an example of someone who's like, you never saw it coming. She's not, it's not Mm -hmm. part of her brand to be depressed. Think about these minds, man. You have Frederick Nietzsche, one of the most iconic philosophers, Vincent Van Gogh, one of the most iconic painters. None of them achieved success during their lifetimes. Yeah, Vincent Van Gogh sold one painting during his life. And it's scary because for me, and I'm not saying like I'm on track to be a a fucking iconic author, but for that shit to happen next door, you know, it's just, you're you're flanked by it. You can't escape it. Yeah, it's around you at all times, and this guy can't—and I don't even want to say his name—but for him, every day to seek me out, to have a conversation, to talk to me, you know, the most uplifting guy, you know, full of energy. For this guy to pull the fucking trigger on himself, it's like, how does any of us stand a chance? You know, well, he could have still been that same uplifting, happy-go-lucky guy. And a five minute dark spiral in his life that he may have not been equipped to deal with led him to pull the trigger. Yeah. And but it's it's a permanent solution for a temporary problem. Yeah. 
you know, but it has such a it has such a a a significant impact. Yeah. I mean, he was married. He's got a wife. It's a widow now. Yeah, they're in their seventies. Well, well, what was the quote you said by Hemingway about the bleeding in, in the beginning? There's nothing to it to it about writing. You just have to sit down at a typewriter and bleed. It's, okay, so if, if you take that to the ultimate fulfillment, if you view creativity as you bleeding slowly out over the course of your life, the ultimate way to fulfill that is once you've had your creative climax, you're, you're bled out completely. You kill yourself because there's nothing better for you to do. But there are also examples of people that are, have been creative geniuses that are great writers, artists, um, you know, producers, whatever that have another view of creativity, which is that everything you create breathes life into you and other people. Like it gives you a reason to keep going. It's not, it's, there's suffering involved, but it's not just bleeding. It's, it's, it's suffering that builds you up into a state that's more powerful and sensitive and better than you were before that creation. And then you continue to, to build on that. Yeah. And so I think it doesn't have to end. It, it doesn't have to end like that. that okay. There are other ways to, yeah. to but, think about creativity besides just slowly bleeding yourself out into the world. But and, on the contrary, if you can reduce your happiness to a hedonic treadmill, your desires to uh, mimetic desire, you are literally you can tell that you're not unique. You're not special. You're literally just recycled stimulation, stimuli, reacting to stimuli. How do you not invoke a, a perennial sense of nihilism that everything is fucking meaningless? You know? Isn't that a relief though? Because something when I think about that, you could either say everything, like everything is fucking meaningless. Fuck this. Or you're like, yeah. Everything's fucking meaningless. Like, so who, who gives, gives a, a fuck? Exactly. Like, yeah, like, and, exactly. and, and you're, and you, and that's and you flip the absurdism. That. Yeah. That's absurd. Yeah. And, yeah. and like, you let that empower you. And, yes. and something like, you know, Van Gogh selling one painting in his life to me, yeah. that's inspiring because yeah. I'm like, like, if Van Gogh sold one fucking painting yeah. in his life, how lucky am I if I sell a fucking podcast? Well, isn't that the thing, man? Yeah. Van Gogh, the most iconic painter of history. Yeah, there's a museum Went of him in every country on the planet. Fucking Edgar Allan Poe yeah. died in debt. When he fucking died, people came and they fucking stole his shit because he owed them money. Yeah. Like, these are prolific artists in our history that we look up to and they all went to their grave thinking they're fucking failures, man. Yeah. Like crazy, you know? Yeah. Crazy shit. Yeah. Finding inspiration in the meaninglessness of things. Yeah. I I feel like after our conversation and also looking into things like mimetic desire and, and just, like I've de- I've definitely had a more absurdist spin to my life after our conversation, and then also the pandemic, where I'm like, "What the fuck is the point to all this? I'm chasing something. I'm yep. here for literally a blink of an eye, yep. 
no one's going to give a fuck about yeah. the the most iconic famous person from my generation is going to be forgotten in a hundred exactly. years. Exactly. So why the fuck am I worried if I don't reach a stage in my life? Why not just enjoy shit? And, and I, and exactly. I've had a lot easier time dropping the shit more quickly that I don't enjoy because yeah. I'm more about if this isn't fulfilling to me now, I, I, I don't want to do it. And that doesn't mean I don't suffer. I, I, mm -hmm. I think a big part of the creative process is suffering to get yeah. through the celebration of, of making shit mm -hmm. and, and putting it out into the world. Well, you, you talked about stoicism before. Yeah. One of the most profound stoicists is Seneca. Mm -hmm. And one of his you know, most iconic quotes is, is that we often suffer more in imagination than in reality. Yeah. And it's so true. I mean, if we wake up every day, we obsess about something, some sort of, um, you know, permutation that can happen, some sort of circumstance that can happen. And majority of the time, that shit doesn't materialize. But yeah. we've still suffered through the possibility of it happening. Yeah. You know? Yeah. The, the, biggest, the biggest part of that for me is I always have conversations in my head before they happen in real life. And right. then I suffer because I project those outcomes of the conversation, the imagined outcomes of conversations into my present day. Yeah. The, the imagined outcomes of future conversations into what I'm doing right now. And meditation has been part of this, but I, I recognize those thoughts and I'm like, oh my God, my day, half of my day has been shitty. I've had this overcastness to my day because I imagined some bullshit conversation in my head in the morning that hasn't actually happened yet. I just yeah. assumed the, the person felt this way. Yeah. Hypothetical, I just assumed man. the person was going to react this way. I assumed this thing about an opportunity and I pulled on that fucking cloud of darkness that was imagined and I made it real by having it affect what I'm actually doing. Yeah. And I fucking... So, uh, 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 sometimes I snap myself out of it. There are other times where it takes me hours or days to realize that I've been living in this fucking imagined fog right. of darkness. And it's the, the quote wild. Seneca. It's, it's this imagined suffering that I'm putting myself through for no reason. Crazy, you know? And if we could be cognizant of that, our lives would be so much yeah. better. Yeah. Know? So speaking of suffering, mm -hmm. black people. Mm -hmm. Let, let's get into, <laughs> yes. let, let's, let's get into, this will make sense. Mm -hmm. There was a magazine that you, you sent me a screenshot of one of the, requ the, the, yes. the pay, the, the, the payment, um, requirements or kind of like the payment procedure of this Joyland magazine. magazine, Joyland magazine. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We'll say it. Joy, it's on, it's on their page. It's public. Yeah. So no, they, they Seriously, yeah. you have got to a, a, a shed light. So, so, that. so, Joyland magazine, which is like one of the top ten magazines in all of the U.S. Is it, okay, yeah. So, Joyland magazine has this payment procedure listed on mm -hmm. their website. So, it's yeah. not like we're exposing a private conversation. Like yeah. this is literally, if you go to submit a story, yep, as a writer, this is what you see, mm -hmm. and it says, um. This, quote, this project charges fees, parentheses, or requires purchases for some submissions. 
they charge fees for all people who are black. Or, or they charge fees for all people except who are black. <laughs> yeah. Or, uh, yeah. Yeah. So basically, Joyland Magazine has fee submissions across the board. Mm-hmm. And then... Unless you're they, black. And they don't charge people yes. who are black writers yes. who are submitting. So... Which I... I was th- like, this is the, that that's so racist. That's so much more racist than it's charging black people. subliminal racism. Yeah, because it's like saying. You, you are too poor. Yeah, to we, pay for- we don't even need to ask for your income statement. We know you can't afford mm-hmm. to submit your story to this magazine yeah. because you're black. And listen, like you have the best intentions, but something like that is so patronizing for somebody that's a person of color where I'm reading this and I'm like, Oh, I, I must be too poor that I can't pay you $3 to read this. Yeah. And like I said, you have the best intentions, but this sort of shit is, is just, it's counterproductive. It it really is. And the fact that you're then saying that regardless of the story content, it's based, it's merit is based on the color of the skin of the author. It's so problematic, yeah. you know? And, and as a writer, I'm like, sure. Like then this isn't the magazine for me. Obviously I don't fit your, your, your desired criteria. But yeah. So you checked off black on the box. So you could save a few bucks. Well, I'm like, then how do you gauge? Like what happens if I'm 25% African-American? Can I send you a DNA test? Like, yeah. I just like stuff like this is not conducive to making things better. This is separating writers further. It's more decisive than anything. You yeah. know, and seeing something like that on the top 10 magazine, it's just like, how do you not take that as, as like some form of subliminal racism? Yeah. You know? if, you, if you're a magazine or, or some institution that charges fees for everyone except black people, you're basically saying that we don't even have to ask for your level of income or tax bracket, whatever you want to do. We know this will help you out yeah. because we're, you know, we're, uh, flagellating ourselves to Mm. have less money so that we can show you how anti-racist we are when in actuality, this is like, (laughs) like, why not, why not do it by tax break? Why not say you don't have, if you make less than 30 K a year, just send us a screenshot of your last income statement uh like your tax from last year your tax statement from last year and we will waive the fee my main question is is does a story improve in terms of its quality based on the color of the skin of the author does the story improve in its quality based on the color of the skin of the author like if you have if you have the same story and first you're saying, all right, this is a white author mm-hmm. and they read it. And then the next person says, well, then this is a black author. Does the quality of the story improve if it's from a different skin color? 
I don't think if you have the same story, mm-hmm. if you're trying to tell the same story, the same experience of a white person and a black person experience the same thing and they have similar backgrounds, similar family situations, because to me, it's all the experience. It's not what mm-hmm. color. You, it's the the experience that led up to it. How, what Like, what was your home situation like? Where'd you grow up? Were your parents like, like what led up to that experience? And how can you write about it based on your past experiences? Mm -hmm. So if you take two people who are very similar and had similar backgrounds, you know, similar family situations, and they write a story, one's white, one's black, I don't think it changes all that much. But if you have two people who had different experiences growing up where one person was from a poor neighborhood, maybe grew up with a single mom, that gives you the ability to write about different things. So Mm -hmm the story would be different to start off with. So you couldn't even write the same story as that person. Yeah. And, and but my, my question is, is that if you have the same story, does, is it more appealing if the author is white or if the author is non-white? Is it more appealing to the reader or the yeah. magazine? Both. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think it's, right? I, I don't think it's any, more or less to me, I don't. First of all, if I'm if I'm buying a book or mm-hmm. I'm reading, something, is that like a contingency where you're like, I only want unless unless someone I'm only going to be fascinated with yeah. stories unless unless someone has a name that's like obviously of African descent where I yeah. know this person is black based on their name. Yeah. I don't know if, if someone is named like John Edwards, if that person is white or black. If I, if I look at the book cover and I see that picture of that person, yeah. which I never do because I just click the buy button on Amazon because okay. it's so easy. Yeah. I don't give a shit about the race of the person buying the book. Maybe the, the book has a racial... Uh, context to it. So okay. just based on the the yeah. the summary of the book, I know that it's a black or white or Indian or Asian person writing it. But 95% of the time, the person's race who is writing a book it's or short story doesn't even enter my mind. I'm just like, That's the point. Yeah. this seems like an interesting concept of a story. Yeah. If it's part of the story, maybe I find out the protagonist or the author is of a certain race. But other than that, I, I don't give a shit. Uh, all I right. give a shit is uh, about is, is, is it a good story? Quality. Yeah. The quality of yeah. content. Yeah. yeah. And with that being said, there, there are some stories that uh, people of different backgrounds can tell because they, they may be treated a certain way by police or, or by institutions, whatever, like if a person was pulled, if a black guy was pulled over and treated like shit down South by a cop or like a Jewish guy was pulled over in a town and bum fuck nowhere and was mm. treated like shit by a cop. Like yeah. they may be of a certain background or, or skin color where they are telling a story that unites people and is a common experience of other people who are also of that skin color or background, but that doesn't make the story good. That just gives you a starting point yeah. of the experience and then your ability to write about it and craft the narrative and tell that story will be the difference maker. Yeah. Because okay. those those are the stories that last. Yeah. Okay. Like you, you, your background may put you in a position 
and your skin color may put you in a position, your religion may put you in a position to have an experience that other people may not have, but then you still need the skill and the creativity and the discipline to craft that into a story that other people want to read. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And that's just different from human person to person. Like yeah. every person has only certain stories that they can tell yeah. well. They, they they can they can write certain things. I gotta put money in the meter. Okay, go yeah. do it. All right. So to end off, I, I wanted to get mm-hmm. into this rejection that you sent me. A rejection from a magazine because mm-hmm. because I, I, I thought this was actually very funny when I read it. So I feel like we should end on a a light note. Okay. This rejection from a magazine on the annual memorandum, annual memorandum on mortality. Which is my, like, I just finished this short story, uh, the end, probably mid November. And I pitched it to about 15 magazines. And this is the first magazine that got back to me. So it's still in the work. It'll probably be my last short story before my debut novel is published. So this this is the the rejection word for word from the magazine. Yeah. He wrote because it was a guy's name. I'm not, I'm not assuming that. Mm-hmm. I'm not assuming. I would never assume Cannot gender assume. on this podcast. Exactly. He writes, "Quote: I had the opportunity to read an annual memorandum on mortality." And I really enjoyed this piece, especially the clever symbolism and the floating narration. Unfortunately, this story may be a little too subliminal slash smart for the clientele that frequent this publication. Sorry to decline, just not a right fit for this magazine. And he, he, by rejecting this piece, by calling it too smart and subliminal, he's basically calling the readers of his magazine Imbuses. dumb pieces of shit yeah. that can't understand <laughs> you know, writing exactly. from, mm-hmm. and, and yes, you do use a lot of symbolism, but mm-hmm. if, if I can read stories like Finn Almost Buys a Goldfish mm-hmm. or um, Bleed and understand what's going on in the story and get a lot of meaning out of it. Yeah. Then other people can do it too. I'm, I'm not a professional writer. I, I, Mm -hmm. you know, fucking, you know, picture books make me feel at home. So if I, if I can, if I can understand something, then, you know, chances are other people can understand it too. And I, I get a lot of meaning and, and, you know, inspiration and fulfill fulfillment out of what you write. And so it's like, this guy is projecting, his maybe his own misunderstanding of the story or inability to understand the story yeah. onto his readers. Like maybe he's dumber than his readers. Yeah. Which is, I mean, listen, anytime you can get a personalized rejection letter, you know, you made an impact with that published publication or um, editor. In this case, um, it was me, by the way. I didn't mean to reject it. <laughs> I mean, it in slipped this, out. And in this case, you know, he indirectly insults his his readers uh, by being quote unquote too stupid to kind of yeah. understand the story. <laughs> yeah, basically, the, the it says, I, "I'm sorry, Chris. Our readers are not intelligent enough to understand <laughs> this story." 
Yeah. Unfortunately, you're going to have to write something with pictures next time so that our readers yeah. will be able to understand what's going on. Yeah, exactly. And I have to, I want to take this time to apologize for my stellar intellect. Uh, I didn't mean to oppress Please. anybody. Yeah. Um, I feel really- oppressed during this podcast <laughs> and the last one too. Um, but this story, the annual memorandum on mortality is is really a satirical realist read. And it's my longest short story. It's about 5,000 words. Um, and, and it'll get it picked up by a publication that realizes its potential. And um, so I'm not worried about that. But uh, the annual memorandum on mortality is... Um, a very technical term to just kind of reference someone's birthday, um, an annual memorandum. So a yearly reminder that you're going to die, um, you know, and that's pretty much your birthday every year. You, um, are reminded that you're one step closer to death. And this story, um, once it gets published, um, I'm sure it'll be published in the next couple months. Mm. Um, I sent it out to a couple of different magazines, but it's a very clever way of exploring what it's like to get older um, once you're past 21 and the abundance of Facebook messages you receive, um, you know, wishing you a happy birthday and the the new sort of evolution of life once you get into your 40s and um, and what your birthdays are like, you know, obviously your momentous birthdays are, you know, when you're 18 or you're 21 or you're 25 or you can drink or you can drive, drink and rent a car. But after that, your birthdays are kind of just an amalgamation of all one birthday and it, it, it kind of loses its significance. And this mm-hmm. story is kind of a satirical read on that. Um, <clears throat> and there's a lot of subliminal messaging there. Um, and it's something that my, my, my audience or my followers can look forward to once it gets published. But, um, at this point it's deemed a little too smart. Yeah. You're going to have to dumb it down a little bit for, for readers like (laughs) myself and listeners of the podcast. And honestly, like that's the best kind of rejection letter letter you can get. Like, sorry, this is just too smart for our, our readers. So it's like, like getting rejected by an Ivy league school and they're like, I'm sorry, you're just too (laughs) intimidating. Your intelligence is yeah. intimidating to our student body, except this is not an Ivy League uh, yeah. publication. They're yeah, just like, exactly. And, and so my thing is bleed has a lot of subliminal messaging mm-hmm. in it. And there's the obvious symbol of the blood, but then there's all the the deeper symbols and, and context that we talked about that you can dive into. And you can enjoy a story like bleed and I'm sure the annual memorandum on mortality is is similar in the sense where you can en- you can enjoy it on the surface level, and it's almost like a choose your own adventure to how deep you want to take the story. Exactly, like different exactly. people will end up in different layers of the story, mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily a mark on your intelligence because you got to this level of understanding. Maybe some people will take it to points that you didn't even realize we're there because something happened in their own life that you haven't experienced. And they were like, oh, th- this made me, this symbol, uh, I-, I took this symbol away from bleed or this meaning away from bleed. And that applies to my own life. And you're like, yeah, fucking go with that. I didn't even know I was you know, writing about that. But yeah. if you, if that means that to you, then take it and 
and run with it. And, and people, and you have your own meanings behind stories when you're writing them Absolutely. and not everyone that reads it will tap into that meaning. But that, that's also the beauty of, of putting something out into the world that, you know, a thousand people will read the story that you write and they will be taken a thousand different ways. Mm-hmm. And each person based on their own biology and experiences is finding a slice of meaning mm-hmm. and then choosing how far they want to think about it or not think about it. Or, you know, they read a story like Bleed or Annual Memorandum on Mortality when it comes out. Maybe they read that uh, in January of 2022 and then six months later they read it again and they take something away from it. Mm-hmm that they didn't take away the first time or something happens to them in their life. And they're like, Oh fuck. Like this reminds me of that story. I need to go back and read it again. So there's so many layers of it. But this is a a pervasive sort of element of the industry where they are in not so many words, but there are kind of condescending towards Mm -hmm. their readers where they're like, this is too above their heads. Like they're not going to get it, you know? And, and what does that, what kind of service does that do to your yeah. readers, you know? Um, and, and listen, this is just one magazine. Like it's going to get published in the next couple of months. Um, but it's just shocking that they are indulging in some semblance of censorship, you know, like the, verbatim. They're like, we like this story, but it's, too smart. So therefore we're going to shelter our readers from this, you know, and how can you grow from that? If you're being constantly sheltered from something that's a little more intellectually stimulating, you know, like that, that sort of stuff just really flusters me. Maybe the guy who wrote this response in the email, calling it too smart or Mm -hmm. too subliminal wanted to be a writer himself and or just you know maybe he felt threatened by the writing because this does happen like people people will encounter other creative works and Mm -hmm. they wish that they created it themselves or maybe they feel threatened by the level that it gets to or how how good it is and they're like yeah there's no way that you know our readers are going to get this because if it's over my head then there's no way anyone else is going to be able to understand this or contextualize this there's a lot of ego that goes into today's society and it's not just publishing it's um and ernest becker talks about this this is that our, our ego is um you know something that we created to help identify ourselves but it also helps us develop a defense mechanism like where we get these sort of invasive thoughts and we're like we separate ourselves from these thoughts we're like this isn't a part of us but um you know the if you go into buddhism sort of mentality the ultimate sense of enlightenment is the death of the ego mm. um and um you know it depends on how deep you want to get but um as a writer i can advocate that the best way to get in tune with yourself and others is to experience this ego death um where we don't identify ourselves like i don't identify myself as a writer i'm an author you know i have these certain certain things that identify myself that sets up boundaries in a sense 
you know? And once we're able to kind of kill the ego, we can kind of experience these connections that are a little more authentic than where we put up these boundaries where like, hypothetically, I'm the writer. So if you disagree with my writing style, that just means that you're not so, um, you know, um, acclimated with writing per se, Mm -hmm. you know, and, um, you know, these are timeless motifs that Freud kind of talked about, but we are constantly working on now. And it's, it is a constant sort of issue with our society, with social media, um, how meretricious it is where we are uploading our best post, our best selfie. Um, we are trying to really kind of, um, provide ancillary support for our ego, you know, and we are closely venturing away from where we need to be with the social media. Um, and that's like, you know, a discussion you can have, you know, for an hour or so, but, um, what it comes down to is, is just being perfectly okay with who you are as a person and not trying to put on a presentation or a facade of, you know, how you want to be perceived. Yes. Well, I think that's a a beautiful place to end off for Mm -hmm. this round of the podcast. Absolutely. And and I want to let you know and, and let my listeners know that even though this podcast is too smart and subliminal for <laughs> for myself, for myself and my audience, I'm going to release it anyway mm-hmm. because I trust my audience. I trust my dumb fucking audience like me. Like mm-hmm. like we're we're in this together. It's just people that are trying to be a little as dumb every day yep. to to get through this podcast and, and find fulfillment and um. No, I I enjoy talking to you every time. This is really this is do, this is fucking awesome, and it's, it's I, natural. I it. and it's, it's natural, yes. Yeah, it's not forced. You know, is so plug everything again that people mm-hmm. can check out, even if it's stories from last time, because people may be listening to this conversation first. There there is Chris Cooper round one. You can search Chris Cooper Oxoro mm-hmm. wherever you listen to I podcasts. I wore a different color blazer. Yes. Um, it was lighter. It was, yeah, it was lighter. This one is is more indicative of my, of my inherent darkness. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, be on the lookout. Listen, like I get so many messages every day from magazines and publishers and fans. And like, I'm working on the novel. The novel should be pitched by the end of the year. Um, I have another short story that we kind of talked about, the annual memorandum on mortality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm pitching that to magazines. Maybe I'll pitch it to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, it'll be out there soon. You'll pitch later. it to me? I'll pitch it to you. For what? For if you want to release it, you would let me re- release a story. Yeah, if you want on to, Agora? man. Yeah, I would I, love to. Yeah, if you want to, man. I, I mean, honestly, at this point, the 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 bullshit that I've that I've experienced in the publishing industry, I'm just like, you know what? It's it's so like over the top and just so pompous. Where I'm like. Anybody that has the stomach to release this stuff is where I want to be at. Mm-hmm. You know, like I don't, I, I don't enjoy in, in, indulging in the politics of this industry. Yeah. 
it is the most discouraging aspect of it. So, um, you know, like I've sent my, my story out to a couple of publications, but in the, in the end, if, if they find that it's not like, you know, it's too, um, intellectually stimulating, you know, then, then maybe I'll, I'll send it to you. Yeah. I I would love to. The deal is though, even though I'm going to publish the story on Oxoro, I still get to write a rejection letter. (laughs) I still want the satisfaction of rejecting you, just writing the words to to just pierce you. I want to get you somehow to rejection and then we can read it on round three. But you should reject me solely based on my skin color. Yes. That's what you should do. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Well, because you're white, I'm going to waive the submission fee. Usually it's a few grand. I'm going to waive that for you. Okay. Um, That's my white privilege. Yes. Because you're white. And and so, yeah, I I, I would be an honor. I love it. So, so there's, um, there's bleed people will check out bleed and I'll link this, all this in the the podcast on YouTube or film spies goldfish. Yeah. Send you that one. Bleed. And, uh, was there, there was another one. Calvin Klein. Calvin Klein, yes. Calvin Klein has got the uh, comment section disabled. Yeah, yeah, but- go read that. <laughs> People can't comment anymore. Literally, literally, the comment section got too wild I on got- Calvin Klein. Yeah, I got people a little, little fired up there. Yeah. But it's, it's. Listen, I am, I am literally. If if you want to put me into a box, because that's what the society does, is we want to kind of give a labels to, um, you know, I'm in this box where I want you to start asking questions. And dialectics is a, a lost art. Um, and it's the form of asking questions to get down to objective truths. And um, if you read my stories, you're going to get authentic stories. You're not going to get... These stories that are wrapped up in bows and happy ever after endings. So, um, you know, obviously I, I, I have a good following here, but if you want to indulge and, and join upon, um, you know, I have a, a link to all my stories in my Instagram bio where you can access them. What, what's your Instagram? Say? So my Instagram is coopd 88 Mm. And if you click my link in my bio, you can access all my stories. Oh, yeah. um, I have Descent. I have The Swim. I have The Eulogy. I have uh, Finn Almost Buys a Goldfish. Mm. And I have Bleed. And you can see the progression between these stories. Um, you can see, you know, what has caused the rise in the um, people that read it and the commentator. Um you know, that, that, that people are constantly, you know, leaving comments on, um, you know, I, I recommend you just immersing yourself in the literature here because there is, it's not just one-sided, it's highly ambiguous. And depending on your sort of disposition, you can kind of identify with a certain aspect with it. So, um, please, you know, proceed to, to check out my stories and, you know, don't feel like if you're questioning yourself, that's a bad thing. Like, that's what I'm trying to get you to do. Mm. Like, I want you to question existence. Like there is no reason that Aristotle from thousands of years ago, his sort of discussions are still relevant today without the constant questions. Like, you cannot pigeon yourself into just believing whatever fucking seven headline words that you read, you know? Mm. You've got to challenge yourself into reading stuff. Well, Chris Cooper, 
Thank you for coming on the podcast. Absolutely, Zach. It's been a privilege, let's, man. Let's go eat some more food and, and yes. drink some more charcuterie. drinks. Charcuterie. Yes. Char- go get some more charcuterie. <laughs> and and shout out to David Robinson, who is not really a Spartan. He could not make the 101-mile <laughs> trek to up here. Yeah. N- n- no, next time. Ne- we will definitely do a podcast with Chris Cooper and Dave <laughs> Robinson in the future. That that shit will happen. Um, but yeah, thank you, Chris. Go check out Chris's story again. Yeah. Uh, link in his bio on Instagram, which I'll have wherever you're listening to this or watching this. And then Spank the Carp Fiction and Poetry 2020 Anthology available at Barnes Noble. Emerging Writing Awards. For, an- Emerging for Writers Award. Yes, Emerging Writers Award. Yes. And you can check out uh, Finn Almost Buys a Goldfish is in here. Yes. And yeah, thank, thanks again. This, this is fucking awesome. You're the man, Zach. I'll, I'll see you in uh, 2022. 2022. If I'm Do still it. around, man. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> me too. You can take over the podcast. <laughs> What's up, guys? Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Before you go, this is a reminder to let you guys know that I'm dropping bonus episodes on Auxoro Premium for the price of one Bud Light per month. When you sign up for the year, you get two bonus episodes of my show, The Aux, every month that covers exciting, deep, and sometimes twisted topics like MK Ultra, the COVID lab leak hypothesis, fight club, dating, the obesity epidemic, ayahuasca, alien encounters, and more. In addition to two bonus episodes per month, you also get exclusive Ask Me Anything episodes, the ability to submit topic suggestions for the Aux and the Auxoro podcast, and access to all archived bonus episodes to binge at your leisure. Right now, there's over 25 hours of archived content, and it grows every month. For the best deal in premium podcasting, visit auxoro.supercast.com to sign up today. No topic off limits. That's auxoro, A-U-X-O-R-O dot supercast.com. Thank you for your support and I'll see you next time.